The following is a conversation with Martin Schibbe, who is one of Sweden's most incredible investigative journalists, the founder of Blank Spot, and the author of too many extraordinary stories to mention. There are about three and a half hours of total recording here, and this podcast is broken down, therefore, into three distinct chapters. If I was smart with distribution, then I would bleed this out over three different episodes, but I am not, and hence, the whole thing is being released here in one big podcast. So, do be a savvy podcast listener and navigate with the timestamps. Not everything will blow your socks off, but I guarantee you that there is at least something here for everybody throughout this chat. So, the three different uh, chapters, as it were, are as follows. The first hour is a conversation about Cards of Qatar, which is the story Martin and his team have spent the last two years working on. It is a documentation of the immigrant deaths in Doha in construction of this slimy, corrupt FIFA 22 World Cup. There is so much complexity to this issue, and this is something Martin is a world authority speaking on. So it is an absolutely amazing hour from Martin there. The second hour-ish is Martin reliving the time of his life when he was imprisoned in Ethiopia. This is a well-documented ordeal Martin endured and has been made into both a book and a movie, both by the name of 438 Days. In short, I think this might be my favorite part of the conversation. Then finally, the last hour-ish, 40 minutes or so, is a bit about Martin, a bit about where he grew up, who he is, what his life experiences have been, and then how to thrive as a freelance journalist. So please do share this far and wide. I hope leading up to the tournament and then our remembering of the tournament, the FIFA World Cup I'm speaking about, we remember it as a slimy event. Like we remember Beijing 2008 as a slimy event. Or Rio 2018 or Rio, whenever the Rio Olympics was, as a slimy event. Because Doha is a stupid place to hold a sporting tournament. As you'll hear in the conversation, uh, we open up on it more. But ultimately, just... Let's remember it as a filthy tournament because this tournament is head-to-toe slimy. Finally, this podcast took me over five hours, well over five hours to produce, but it will only take you five seconds to review. So please slide up your apps, whether that's Spotify, Apple, whatever. Leave fat, juicy, energetic reviews. Pump juice into the various algorithms. Direct them towards a curious worldview. Let them know that people are listening to a curious worldview. And I should also mention, please hang around to the end to hear my afterthoughts from the chat and as well for me to explain my ambition for this podcast. And with absolutely no further ado, here is Martin Schibbe. Well, Mr. Schibbe, tell me about Cards of Qatar. Cards of Qatar is a way of packaging very complex journalism in a new and innovative way to reach football fans and to give them information uh, that could help them uh, in this ongoing discussion now leading up to the World Cup in Qatar 2022. Uh, From the beginning it started with, uh, I mean, I, I worked a lot in Southeast Asia and South Asia, and every time you fly there, you you always pass like Abu Dhabi or Doha or uh, 
some of the UAE um, countries on your way because yeah those those were the cheapest <laughs> flights and sometimes you you spent a couple of days uh, before going to the Philippines or uh, Cambodia or, or whatever the assignment was at the time uh, so I mean I remember already in like 2008 when the financial crisis hit uh, the kind of airy uh, atmosphere at the uh, the airport in, in in Abu Dhabi with you know deserted cars and you know panic in the air and all these skyscraper scrapers you know half half done and and then hundreds of hundreds of migrants like gathering in the parks they didn't have any ticket home they didn't know what would happen they'd lost their jobs and I mean I remember meeting one one Indian construction worker and uh, I sat down with him in the grass and, and, um, and asked him about his situation. And he's like, oh, you're here to write about the horrible conditions for the workers. <laughs> <laughs> I know that this was 2008. Uh, and I'm like, yeah. And, and he you know, explained to him in a way that, you know, the answer, it doesn't lie here. You have to come to India to understand why we are here. You have to, you have to, uh, you have to understand why I went here. Uh, you know, you could look everywhere in uh, this country from south to north but the answer it's just not here so I mean at that time I was a freelancer time was all you had so <laughs> I went to India uh, and, and met his family and met his wife and his daughter and uh, kind of you know began to understood what a hammer poverty is and uh, really the decisions that he took and a lot of his you know fellow countrymen took going to the Middle East to work, to provide for their families, to get their family out of poverty. Uh, and there was also this debate starting at that time about remittance, you know, being more important than foreign aid. Uh, and uh, of course they paid a huge price, uh, people being away from their families, five years, 10 years or 15 years, but it really had an effect on, on the poverty levels in many South Asian countries and Southeast Asian countries. Uh, so I had this in the back of my head and then with this whole discussion took off with Qatar 2022 there were numbers thrown around you know 6,500 dead according to the Guardian or 15,000 dead and then the Supreme Committee for uh, organizing the game said that no there are three people who died uh, so yeah this kind of bizarre uh, difference between thousands of dead or, or three dead and then I felt that I wanted to get away from this discussion on statistics, on numbers, because uh, I knew these were people. And uh, I had met many of them, you know, before, and I felt, let's tell their stories. Uh, let's find and talk to as many families as possible that lost someone in Qatar. Uh, so then I, I talked to journalist colleagues uh, in Nepal, in Bangladesh, in India. And this was during the pandemic, so I couldn't travel myself. So they set out to uh, to talk to families. And it was much more difficult than I had thought. I thought, well, there are you know thousands of dead. It should be easy to, to find families. Uh, but I mean, embassies were scared. They didn't want to give out lists. Uh, families were scared. Uh, the, the states were also scared because Qatar is such an you know important uh, player. Uh, some of the journalists got nervous and uh, 
I mean, it was really, really a tough. Every interview, uh, you know, it, it was really boots on the ground, finding the families in the villages, explaining the idea to them, uh, getting their stories. But eventually, uh, after a couple of months, we found find, found a way to like find stories, and that was to see, okay, who has received compensation. Because in all these states, due to the huge discussion that's been over the years, uh, in both Nepal and Bangladesh and India, you, you can get compensation from the state in different ways if you lost a family member in Qatar. So then we got hold of those lists and started calling people on those lists. And that made the work easier. Uh, so then, I mean, I had all these stories. We had almost 100 stories. Um, not all of them were, were dead. We also talked to a lot of people who returned uh, and, and could tell about their experience. And then the challenge was that, okay, how do we, you know, how do we present this? How do we package this? Um, and my first idea was, let's just publish one long article with 100 voices. And uh, we do something like, uh, says the reason a lot about Soviet, I mean, Soviet Union and uh, sync boys and she has a way of writing where she has like you know 100 voices and she compiles them into you know wonderful articles i had that kind of idea mm -hmm. like just let's process all this material into one one story uh, i will come up with a name embarrassing, <laughs> embarrassing. <laughs> <So> <laughs> today of all days uh, and uh, uh, then uh, my colleague brit staxton who i founded blank spot with and she has a pr background and her son has always collected football cards uh, since, you know, the World Cup in 1990 and, you know, 94 when Sweden took bronze in the States. And, and onwards, you know, he has all these cards and he has a very special relation to his football cards. Mm. So she came up with the idea, shouldn't we present them as football cards? But instead of players, we will have migrant workers and they are also stars in a way and just make a short version of their life story and have their picture. And then uh, these cards could be sent to FIFA, to the sponsors, and that could create a discussion um, about, I mean, the real cost for this World Cup, mm. telling the stories about those who built Qatar. Uh, and of course, that was a great idea. I mean, I felt that from the beginning as as an idea very original uh, yeah sure. very original and uh it would i mean really have an impact and and be something unique uh but then i thought to myself like okay but how how will the families react i mean would they be fine with us you know because these are dead people you know it, it's it's it can't be reduced to you know a pr right thing the, these people are not could be I taken mean, with us anymore as a, no. as a mockery Ex almost yeah exactly exactly uh so then when the restrictions were lifted in in nepal was one of the first countries in south asia where, where you could travel after the pandemic i immediately went back and i brought uh, the cards with me and i visited three of the families uh and showed them uh, the cards. And I mean, these are also families. They don't live in, in Kathmandu. They don't live in the big cities. They live in, in the countryside. For, for many of the, the families from, from Nepal are from rural areas. They're not the poorest of the poorest, so to, so to speak. They, they, but, but still, uh, you have to 
to travel far to to get them and and really use your feet. Uh, so I, I, for example, one of the families lived in the city of Gandrung, and it was Anish Gurung who went to Nepal in very very in, no he 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 went to Qatar in a very very young age. He was only 1920. Uh, the, the city. Uh, the village where, where he grew up, they didn't have a road until two years, three years ago. So when the road came, his dream was to get his driver's license and then uh, you know, to go to Qatar and work uh, as a driver. His dream? His dream, yeah. When the road came, he could uh, you know, uh, get his license. So it's uh, almost an ambition to go to the Middle East to get this money. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's the way to get out of poverty. Wow. And... Uh, I mean, they have also. You could also see that people who had worked in the Middle East, they would the first year they would change the roof of the house, and the second year they would uh, pay off their loans, and the third year they would move to the big cities. Uh, you could really see that process happening in Nepal. Uh, the extreme poverty has has dropped. I mean, significantly from like forty percent to. 16-70 percent uh, so yeah that that is many people's the, the dream is to go to go to Nepal really and uh, that was also Anish uh, Anish Gurung's dream he went there uh, he ended up in a car accident uh, after just six months of on, on the job and uh, came back in a coffin and uh, the family went to uh, to Kathmandu to receive the body. Um, traditionally in, in Nepal, the, the body needs to be cremated and there is a special ceremony where you put food in the mouth of, of the dead to uh, to bring on into... Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, but they couldn't really identify like where is the mouth. I mean, the body was so damaged after the accident. And uh, they still, you know, did the process and then he was he was cremated so i met that family and uh, they told me about anish gurung's dreams and also at the time i was lucky because all his friends had this memorial tournament for his to his memory he loved basketball and it's also kind of a, a twist to it that is basketball loving young kid uh, you know died leading up to the football world cup but still so there was this memorial tournament uh, taking place in the village at, at the time also and all the young people were telling me about how they remembered Anish and uh, the family of course they missed the son but they also missed the son's income uh, now they were his sister could, could had had a job and could work but still the situation for his father and mother was very very tough and they were kind of falling free uh, now, when they didn't have the income from the sun, but his death had also created a discussion in the village, uh, like, shouldn't we stay here in Nepal? Shouldn't we, you know, get an education? Shouldn't we build, take this village out of poverty? Maybe that is the solution, and not just, you know, take ourselves out of poverty. And there were many others who had chosen to uh, work at local hotels, or his death had, you know, changed the discussion and kind of this glorified version of life in Qatar had been questioned. I mean, but that was also if you compare to Sweden 100 years ago. I mean, one million, pe one million Swedish people went to the United States, mm. uh, forced out of poverty, and also yeah. from a dream of you know having a more 
religious freedom and, and political liberty. Uh, they all, you know, for some it went well, but for most ended up in, you know, slum uh, conditions and sent letters home where they said, well, it's, you know, pigeons falling down from <laughs> from the trees and uh, yeah it's, it's uh, you know rivers of gold and because uh, that was the ex- expectation in a way but also that was entire sort of family migrations mm. and the and the dream was that you could maybe make more of yourself than um say simply driving a car or, or um you know being involved in a big construction process yeah yeah um can you map out for us it's not just Nepal, it's not just India, no, no. it's Bangladesh, a lot yeah, of African yeah. nations mm, as well. Yeah, yeah. Could you map out for us where all of this low-skilled service labor um, is coming from mm. and to which countries it's going to? Yeah. I mean, if if you look at Qatar, it's the size of, I mean, Skåne in Sweden, which is, you know, one uh, tenth uh, maximum of, of the Swedish surface. And there you have... Uh, a population of about 300,000 people, I mean citizens. And then on top of that, you have 2.7 million, you know, migrant workers or guest workers running the country. They do everything from building the roads to uh, working at the hotels to uh, handling um, luggage at the airport to guarding the airport. Uh, and also in the domestic sector, you have people working as, as maids, uh, in the houses, and I mean, traditionally, uh, the maids have have been from the Philippines, uh, from Southeast Asia, and construction workers from uh, Nepal and Bangladesh and, and India. Uh, and I mean, as as you say, during the last eight ten years, we've also seen. Uh, migrants coming from from Kenya um, also many from Pakistan I mean I'd say you have the whole uh, the whole world you know um, working working in, in, in Qatar but it's the same in in, uh, in Kuwait it's the same in Saudi Arabia uh, it's the same in many Gulf countries where they opened up for for migrant workers so our focus on Qatar can sometimes be a little bit uh, tilted in a way because uh, we are looking so much at the situation in, in Qatar and talking to also migrant workers in, in Nepal, they say that they prefer to work in Qatar compared <laughs> to working in Saudi or, or in Kuwait. In, uh, in one uh, of your most mm. recent publications, you told a story of a man who um, was working on a rural Saudi Arabian farm mm. or something, yeah. and he had shown up to uh, the Nepalese embassy, and yeah. he'd almost forgotten how to speak Nepalese, mm. and he hadn't been paid after yeah. sixteen years yeah. of work. Yeah, this is uh, yeah. this is slavery. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. So, and compared to that, of course, I mean, the reforms in Qatar is something that that the workers in the other nations just can 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 dream of uh, but basically the in in Qatar and many of the other countries you have a sponsorship program or it was called the kafala system in in Qatar where in order to get get the job you needed to have a sponsor in the country so your permission to stay in the country was really you know connected to your job 
And that was one of the problematic uh, things that really made the workers vulnerable. Because if you complained about you know <laughs> low salaries or no Jeez, salary yeah, or something, yeah. you would lose Living your conditions. Yeah, um, you would just be sent back home the ultimate or just threat. stranded on yeah. on the street. So that was not really. It was impossible for any kind of yeah. you know trade union or even you know manifestation or or nothing because that you were so tied to your to your employer, mm-hmm. uh, so fragile yeah. to their whim. Yeah, exactly. And they and almost they confiscate the passports too, right? Yes. Upon arrival, they would take your passport, and and uh, especially for for I mean domestic workers, you have I mean really really horrible stories of uh, people actually I mean being basically locked up in in a house, not being allowed to to even go you know outside or and then uh, escaping sometimes, jumping from balconies and mm. and finding countrymen uh, that would. Uh, save you so uh so so that was one of the key i mean factors that the situation for workers were really really bad i mean apart from the low wages or the long working days or etc but still the wages i mean compared to working in nepal or to not working were were higher Mm -hmm. that was the reason that people sacrificed themselves can you put some numbers to that for example what they'd be paid relative in USD, say for equivalent work in Nepal as in Qatar. And that's forgetting the fact that the opportunity doesn't even exist in Nepal in the first place. But just to get a sense for that desperation, because I'm I'm very, I'm shocked to hear that like a young man's ambition Mm -hmm. was to move to Qatar so he could send money back home. Mm. Yeah. Um, Maybe it's just my own ignorance, not understanding the desperations Mm. of that level of poverty. I, I thought maybe the ambition might be to go to the big city, mm, Kathmandu, yeah, yeah, you know. If, yeah. but, so some yeah. numbers to uh, um, what they're paid. I mean, it's it's low. Uh, I think the I have to check it up now. Uh, <laughs> the the actual like minimum wage and and what it is. But in Swedish crowns, uh, a normal salary would be about two thousand five hundred Swedish crowns mm-hmm. uh, monthly, mm-hmm. uh, and and so that's. 250 euros yeah something yeah. like that and lately the the minimum wage has been raised so to about 3000 4000 swedish crowns a month uh so that's you know the considered well paid in uh, nepal or in qatar in qatar in, in qatar, qatar yes because yeah, yeah, in yeah. nepal it's no in nepal it's drastically even, even yeah. lower yeah yeah and so you mentioned um 2.7 million sort of subcontinent and maybe northeast african workers yeah. um yeah. all the labor all the construction all the domestic duties yeah yeah um even at the gyms you know someone opening and closing the door to the gym yeah you know in countries where i mean work uh, l- salaries are really cheap they have these yes. strange jobs yes. <laughs> yeah so yeah um 2.7 million in qatar and then you mentioned there's also kuwait saudi arabia um, I'm presuming this also would leak into Egypt and this would leak yeah. into surrounding countries. Do you have any sense for the overall amount of these type of workers who now exist in this part of the world? Now, I understand that those yeah. numbers are going to be vague at best, yeah, yeah. but have you mm. thought about it or have you read that somewhere? I don't have that figure. I mean, I know that in terms of money being sent home, uh, remittance by far 
surpasses the the total amount of foreign aid. I mean, all the aid being paid by uh, by states to other states. If you compare that with the money sent home by migrant workers, yeah. that sum is 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 much much bigger. Mm-hmm. But no, I don't have the overall figure <laughs> of, uh, of of migrant workers. Uh, it's 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 growing. I I know from I know ILO reports and uh, I mean UN organizations have for the last 10-15 years focused on migrant workers' rights more and more because they are so um, vulnerable and uh, they play such an important role for for the global economy. So I um, first came across Kazu Qatar Mm. at the beginning of the year or something. I'm not exactly sure how I found out. I think it was because my girlfriend told me about yeah. and yeah, yeah. so forth and I was like wow yeah, what a guy yeah. this is very cool yeah. and saw blank spot and went from mm. there um, but it was coincidental timing because I had flown back to Australia for a wedding yeah. and my flight yeah. Stockholm Doha Doha yeah. Sydney yeah. so I flew in I flew into and out of Doha twice mm. and having just absorbed this story that you were telling mm. I saw it in this really sort of slimy slimy lens Mm, mm. because it was so efficient in the airport because there was say 10 guys you know manning the queue for the (laughs) uh for the for the security whereas in alanda there's no one there there. (laughs) and in sydney there was no one (laughs) there um but then as well flying in you could see this desert Mm -hmm. because it's just Mm -hmm. sand with these um sort of like palm tree made islands with Mm. um you know dubai like tackiness of Mm. high rises Mm. but then on the horizon you see a bunch of stadiums Mm. yeah and i thought what the fuck you watch the the highway going out to the stadium Mm. zero supporting infrastructure around it it's just a road in a in a in a sea of sand Mm. to a very fancy stadium there isn't even like housing around the stadium cafes restaurants nothing Mm. and you just look at it and just think this is the most absurd waste Mm. yeah not only are all these people dying Mm. in construction of this but the environmental cost of Mm. building all of this stuff which is never going to be used again could you to bring it back to the cars of Qatar and specifically 2022 FIFA World Cup, can you explain how they even got it in the first place? And we'll just leave it there. Yeah. I mean, the short answer is they bought it. You know, they they bribed officials. And uh, since then, I mean, there are 15 or 16, I think, of those who took that decision who have been, you know, prosecuted uh, within the uh, FIFA uh, and, and the football the global football organizations so it's 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 clear now that they uh, they bought the world cup because as you say it's it's surreal this is a country without any football tradition without any arenas you know uh, and just the the fact that the world cup this year will take place during the the winter you know and not during the summer is because it's too hot for the players uh, but then who thought of the workers working in this <laughs> uh, really really hot conditions uh, so no it and Qatar the figures differs but some say they they invested about 200 you know billion dollars uh, to build these these eight arenas and these cities 200 uh, billion dollars yeah uh, and it's 
yeah, I mean, it, it's beyond uh, beyond surreal. Uh, and I think that everyone now in hindsight says that, you know, it was a wrong decision to uh, to award Qatar the World Cup. But now, hey, we are here. They build all this stuff. <laughs> all these people, you know, died. Uh, let's do the best of the situation. Let's just, you know, have the World Cup there. Uh but what I think needs to be done is to we need to have a discussion of I mean, which countries shouldn't there be any you know, criteria for arranging the World Cup uh, in how you treat workers or living up to any human rights standards or or anything like that? And you had trade unions and um, you know human rights organizations uh, saying that for years now that arranging the World Cup could be a you know. Uh, a positive thing that you get for for doing something good and not just you know award the bad guys through some sport washing scheme yeah the highest bidder uh and some say that well qatar will be the first and the last and that the discussion will change everything uh i think this is just the beginning uh, i think that we will see uh, the olympic games in qatar maybe as early as you know 2036 uh I think we will see more and more of these mega sports events taking place in in Qatar or in Saudi Arabia or in uh, in the Middle East. You can definitely you can uh, bet your bottom dollar yeah. MBS has his <laughs> yeah. hopes and dreams on Olympics yeah. and FIFA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's as as long as uh, in a way money talks, uh, that unfortunately will be the will be the situation. On the other hand. You know, football is nothing without the fans, and we can see now how football fans, you know, all over the world are really, really upset about Qatar and really, you know, discussing Qatar. And uh, I mean, a, a year ago or something, there was this idea for a super league in in uh, in, in Europe where uh, you know the teams would uh, not play in their, uh, you know local national league but join a super league instead uh, but the reaction from the fans was just so strong that this whole idea was scrapped you know within a couple of weeks uh, and there is i mean that power uh, the fans still have that power you know to uh, uh, to determine whether this is the future for football or or, or not mm-hmm. and uh especially the the national football organizations um, have that power to to say that, well, we are not playing in Qatar, we are not going to Qatar. And that discussion now is starting to to gain momentum, but it's, you know, in a way it's too late. Uh, I mean, Ten, eight, ten years ago, you had the Swedish national team going for you know training camps in Qatar, and no one was really questioning them. It was a bit strange that the players couldn't you know drink beer or the, those kind of angles, but no one really you know questioned uh, Qatar or the human rights record in in Qatar. Or uh, but now now everything is on the table. Now everything is is on the agenda. So let's see let's see what. Yeah, let's see what happens. Uh, on the other hand, I think, I mean, as, as a journalist, now having all these, you know, stories with with workers that died, I mean, in Nepal, I also met 
the equal amount of people who had stories of how happy they were uh, providing for their families. And uh, at the passport you know, department in Kathmandu, the lines were really, really long. And people oh, yeah. were dreaming of going to Qatar, trying to get their exit, to, to get their work visas. And uh, they borrowed money, they sold their parents' land to borrow money, to pay a recruiter, to, uh, to get their job. And I remember it was one of the interviews that really you know, made an impression on me on my, my, my latest trip to Kathmandu was this old trade union leader. Uh, he was before a Maoist. He fought in the, in the insurgency to topple the king in Nepal. Uh, so he's really not, I mean, he's really not a right-wing <laughs> kind of guy, so to speak. I mean, this is an old, like, uh, guerrilla fighter who later on was the head of Gefont, the, the trade union in Nepal. And uh, he sounded the alarm back in 2000. 12, 13, and said that we are getting seven, eight Nepalese workers dead home in coffins every day. Uh, this is a, Qatar is a slaughterhouse, you know, and people are dying. And now I went up to him and his office, and he uh, he just looked at me and said that for me Qatar is the greatest victory uh, in my lifetime when it comes to trade union rights. And he said like we apo- we abolished the kafala system. Nobody thought that would be possible. Everyone told us that they will never, ever, the Qataris, uh, sign any agreement that takes away that power from the, from the employer. Uh, but they did. And today, on, on paper at least, the kafala system is, is, is gone. It's abolished. And what is that? Uh, the kafala system is the sponsorship system where, uh, where, where you are, uh, your right to stay in the country depends on the contract you have with your employer. Uh, so it's yeah the sponsorship system uh, basically, and he saw that as I mean a huge victory, mm. and uh, he said that we could just dream about uh, you know getting those kind of demands in in Saudi Arabia or in 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 the region, and I think we also need that as a perspective you know uh, all these debates and all what the you know, BWI, the, the buildings workers, International Trade Union, all what they have done has really in a way had an effect. You know, Qatar has changed many of its laws and made a couple of reforms. And I think from a journalistic point of view, it's crucial for us to also point this out. Otherwise, you know, Qatar would just feel that, you know, it doesn't matter what we do. We still have this one-sided debate where we are the bad guy and, and we are just using the... Uh, labors uh, um, uh, uh, and so on. So I think we need to we need we need to also see that and, and highlight that and 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 make the issue also uh, you know complex and uh, that also leads to a conclusion where you don't see these dead workers as uh, how do you say as objects or just victims. You know they. They were they were the best of the best when it comes to you know putting tiles or you know making the floors or building things tunnels and whatever, uh, and uh, as one of the families said that you know we should be proud of them that proud of what they what they built I mean look at what's been built in Qatar it's been built by workers from South Asia so we should also you know feel feel that they are good at what they do and and, and proud over them in a way. Uh, 
So in a way, I, I, I feel that maybe as, as journalists, we need to make things a bit less black and white and try to find also the nuances in telling this story. Uh, at the same time, of course, we should never, you know, uh, take, uh, you know, take down the pressure on Qatar in any way. But we also need to uh, to have these perspectives and nuances in in the reporting mm. and in the in the reportages that that we publish. Yeah, because mm. uh, that's the first I'm hearing of uh, any. Uh, angle that isn't just pure victimization. Mm, These people mm, have been taken no. advantage of. Mm, it's no. synonymous with slavery. Mm, In no. fact, you're saying that no, these are actually highly sought after opportunities that they're that they're chasing. Um, how do the stories of abuse filter back to those in Nepal? People you're interviewing and talking to when you say to them, "Hey, this guy died of this. Mm. They're dying of young, healthy men are dying of heart failure. It's mm, so yeah. hot." And hard. Mm. Um, how are they reacting to these sort of stories? Their families, or no, the no, the individuals officials. who are keen to go over there. Oh, the guys yeah. standing in the line yeah. in the Kathmandu, um, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good. Uh, that that's a really good question. I mean, they. Uh, they don't see that in a way. I'd say that the whole debate is still glorified you know and the whole uh, they they just see the, they just see the opportunities and they just see the life that they would like to get and uh, many people also I met people who worked in Qatar for maybe eight years and you know they haven't saved a nickel you know <laughs> they haven't saved anything they just work and spend their money and then you know come back to Qatar and then they go again for a new trip and come back and spend their money uh, this was also something that the authorities in Nepal and many of the, uh, the researchers were focusing on that we need people to plan for uh, for migration. You know, we need them to have a plan. Okay, you have this five-year plan or eight-year plan. In eight years, you you want to buy this hotel or you want to buy this piece of land. Then you need to save this amount every year. Uh, and they are trying more and more to reach the people going with information about their laws and uh, about, about the current laws in Nepal and the rights and, and so on. But um, still for, for, for many young people, it was an adventure and a way to, to get out and, and, and to get away. Uh, of course, it's a huge problem for many of these countries where you have the skilled workforce, you know, leaving the country. And, and uh, it's... Uh, yeah, yeah it's 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 uh, in the sh in in the short term they pay a high price, but also in the long term, in, when it comes to you know developing the country, it's yeah. it's problematic if such a huge percent of the population is actually working abroad. Uh, totally, somewhere else. There's yeah, the yeah. you know the economic mm. problem of the brain drain, yeah. famously, which yeah. all these countries already mm. suffer from, because yeah. yeah. the best educated just yeah. go get a job in America yeah. Yeah. or Europe. But that's actually an interesting point. I've never thought about. What about the labor drain? Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 a challenge for the for the country. But now they choose to uh, they choose to play this game, uh, and uh, in a way, uh, also you know, like one guy told me in, in a village that 
if I want to take a loan and I tell the bank I'm going to Qatar, everyone will, will lend you money. Right. But if you want to loan to, you know, build a hotel or, <laughs> you know, start some kind of local business, no way. Wow. Someone yeah. will not lend you money. And that the also incentives are all yeah, wrong. Yeah. So Shit. that's also problematic. Uh, so no, they were not really uh, afraid of of going and it's also interesting one I mean, young woman I talked to, she worked at a hotel. Uh, she didn't receive her salary and she just, you know, stayed on working and not working for about 16 months before she was able to go home. And then the Nepali community collected money for her ticket so she could go back to Nepal. Uh, and then, I mean, she told me it was not good and... Uh, uh, the situation but then on the other hand she now she was looking to you know go away again to, to find another job in some other country mm. and then we became facebook friends and i looked at her facebook posts and they were all you know uh, her standing in front of these famous buildings in in doha uh, in front of the hotel pool in the hotel bar mm. enjoying life you know with a with a drink uh so though she had been there, you know, 16 months without the salary for all her friends following her in Kathmandu, they would just see her, you know, romantized uh, version of, of life in Doha. Uh, and in a way that taught me something about also the, you know, shame and not returning as a Gulf woman or Gulf man in a suit, you know, yeah. taking your family out of poverty, but... Uh, Almost the keeping s- the, the facade, yeah, keeping yeah. the facade of being this successful uh, overseas <laughs> worker, uh, yeah, <laughs> in a way, yeah, which was really, you know, it's also fascinating bizarre. as yeah, well, yeah, like how status games are played locally, mm, yeah, yeah, you know, for her to show yeah. off a drink by the yeah. pool is yeah. the most unreal luxury yeah. of a rich person, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, for these yeah. young men and women standing in the line, mm. keen to go to Qatar or Saudi mm. Arabia, even though they know about these stories, mm. is it a very sort of adventurous proposition that's being presented to them? Like, go abroad and create the best version of yourself, or is it simply money's better there and you can send money home that way? So that's where you go. Money. Yeah, it's I all mean, money. And the push from the family and sometimes push from a whole village. Uh I mean, one guy I met actually in the line to the passport department told me that like the whole village had had collected money so that he could get this job. Uh, so there is a huge burden on their shoulders, and also I mean they are deeply in debt before before they go because you still have these middle uh, recruiters which are illegal. I mean, in Qatar it's illegal, and also in Nepal it's illegal to. You know, you would approach someone in a village and say that, hey, pay me, you know, uh, $4,000 and I will get you a job in Doha. And they would pay this guy $4,000 and then they would get a job. But this guy in the middle is just, you know, a broker of some kind taking advantage of, uh, of, of the labor. And sometimes there is a job, sometimes there isn't a job. Uh, and... This is something that also Qatar always points to that, okay, we are trying to get rid of this, uh, these scams and these, you know, people not getting paid. And, and uh, uh, we try to spread information that no one should have to pay for, for the visa, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, but 
yeah, still there were many horrible yeah, stories of people being, shit. being fooled uh, and, and paying a lot of money to, to get the job. And, and then, then local organized yeah. crime just yeah. uh, gathering people yeah, yeah. and promising them the Yeah. And then, uh, of course, paying back, back the loan would, you know, will take you a year or something. And then you, yeah, you're, you're still there. So in a way... I mean, if you take a helicopter perspective, in many of the cases, it's not a good, you know, time-wise and, and money-wise. It's, uh, uh, you know, you don't come back as a rich person. But while you're there and, and as long as you could send back money home, your parents will have a better life and they will have food on the table. So that kind of responsibility for providing for, for their families what pushes people to go and also, you know, pushes them um to stay and now also with you know everything becoming digitalized you know they can send their salary in a second uh, through their mobile phone to the parents mobile phone and that has also you know changed uh changed things so it's easier to to, to send money isn't that such a yeah. wild thing to think about that you can come from such poverty yeah. that an entire village will will rally around one mm. individual to yeah. go abroad to earn mm. maybe two and a half thousand dollars a month yeah. Yeah. and that'll yeah. make that'll yeah. at least yeah. make some people whole back in the village yeah. Yeah. yet they still have a mobile phone yeah. <laughs> to communicate with someone on the yeah. other side of the world yeah. Yeah. you know like how does it affect you yeah. seeing this level of poverty and then you return here to stockholm where you know csn will make a whole village rich one person see which csn is university payments will make one entire village rich in another country how does it affect you when you think about it i mean it gives you perspectives and uh i think that we don't really i mean value the um the situation we have in Sweden, I mean, living in one of the you know, richest countries in the world and, and having, you know, uh, the right to uh, express ourselves and, you know, print newspapers and, <laughs> and publish things about Qatar without mm. being afraid of, you know, being sent to jail or or so on. Zero threats. Uh, yeah. But on the other hand, I think that we should still complain about things in Sweden. You know, it's not uh, the the standard. The bar shouldn't be Nepal, rural Nepal. You know, that's not that's not uh, uh, that's not the bar. And, and uh, I I still think it's you know important to uh, to also from you know a journalist point of view point out all the things that are unfair in Sweden and and you know systems that that doesn't work or or, or people being you know abused by by the authorities in in sweden and so on it's just as um, important even though we have uh, that experience i mean it's that's always been a thing you know working as a foreign correspondent you meet people that are in horrible conditions and that are poor or that are wounded or or jailed or uh and i think there, there is a time where you feel that well I could give this woman a hundred dollars and that could change this person's life but if I do that I would also stop being a journalist and then it's better for me to work as an to work with with aid or to join an NGO or to, you know try and change the world or become a politician or something uh, 
because I still see journalism as, you know, as a craft or as a, <laughs> we have a special role. And if we are so affected by the things we see that we feel that we have to do something more than, than just write about it, then I think you need to take a break and maybe, you know, just stay home for a couple of months and, and uh, <laughs> recalibrate uh, and then you know hit hit the road again because uh, it's also dangerous i mean many people say now with cards of qatar like okay shouldn't you collect money to the families or shouldn't you uh, and in a way i see that would be a nice thing to do but on the other hand you know paying for interviews or or paying people for for talking to me people would say the most you know horrible things to 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 receive that money or they will make up things yes. and uh, yeah and, and the incentives would just you know go wrong but uh, that would be you know really controversial if someone else does that that would be you know fine you know some NGO or amnesty or whatever picks that up and there's this also demand now for FIFA to pay the families of the migrant workers uh, that that's being pushed I mean that's uh, that's one thing but I think it's important as a journalist not to not to do that. I mean, I'm not a fundamentalist, of course. If someone is starving, you give him food or water, of course. Yeah. Um, but I see there is a line where if you cross that line, you you are no longer a journalist, but but an activist. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to cross that line to still be human, you know, mm-hmm. to another human, of course. Um, but, but the solution is not... I mean, the job we do is to describe the world and then it's up to others to change it or to uh, <laughs> you know uh, do things with that information and then we mix up the roles we will also take away what is what is unique with with journalism but but yes sometimes you feel that uh, you know maybe I should become an aid worker but then usually I I take a break and <laughs> s- sleep and then <laughs> wake up and and uh, take a teaspoon of cement and <laughs> you know just write the story. Yeah. Um, that, it's funny that line between um, activism and journalism. You you actually mm. mentioned yeah. to me off air before yeah, we started yeah. recording as well, because these cards of Qatar, mm. which by the way is going to be the top link in the podcast description, mm. so people can see visually yeah. just how striking it is mm. to mm. see a card that you would associate with Ronaldo, yeah. his yeah. mugshot, mm. his overall stats, yeah. every yeah. etc. But instead. A migrant worker's yeah. mugshot, how he died, mm. how yeah. old he was. It's, yeah. it's very striking. It's a touch morbid as well, but that's yeah. the that's the point of it. Yeah. You know, it, it, it stays with you. Um, you're going to be in mm. Doha mm. at the FIFA yeah. World Cup, handing these out, mm. you know, trying to shame sponsors, yeah. um, trying to almost enforce, enforce is the wrong word, incentivize yeah. boycotts mm. and so forth. Um, that's getting yeah. into the activism yeah. that you're yes. talking about. Yeah, yeah I'm... And for me, the cards is to, you know, it's a hand grenade to get the attention and then to get people to read the articles and the long form stories that are on, you know, the site. Mm-hmm. And in those stories, you have all the complexity and all the different voices and uh, the different opinions and the nuances. But, and I see the cards as, you know, as, as a headline, mm-hmm. you know, uh, here's the headline, read the full story, you need more than uh than just an individual story, yeah. uh, than than just uh, the card. But no, you're right. It's, 
I mean, it's it's balancing on uh, on a thread, but also I also feel that as a foreign reporter, we need to try and reach a new audience. I mean, I can't just complain. You know, no one is reading my sixty thousand character stories. <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, I have to try, you know, my best to package journalism and interviews and stuff in new ways to reach football fans. Mm-hmm. And now this is, you know, one way of reaching football fans with these uh, stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but but no, I totally agree. There is there is a risk of uh, becoming an activist, and also the, you know, if you would really go all the way that uh, that line, that's you know where the wind is blowing now. So it will also be, I mean, a story that makes things more complicated. Uh, doesn't become as viral as you know mm-hmm. a hit piece on on Qatar mm-hmm. or, or uh, uh, something like that, and that's uh, that's a difficult thing. I mean, I see really in our. I mean, and maybe I'm trying you know to eat the cake and to have it <laughs> this <laughs> with the cards thing. You know, not becoming an activist, trying to give let all you know sides have their best arguments um uh, talking about this issue of migrant workers we discussed this before qatar we will discuss it after qatar qatar it's not only you know this wasn't a problem created by the world cup uh, mm. per se that, mm. that migrant yeah, workers you were are seeing being abused it yeah, 10 years ago 10 years ago yeah. it was it's it's so I want to say all that and that you can do in a 60,000 character uh, story. But I think the discussion needs to start with with the individuals that, that actually you know paid the highest price for this tournament to take place. They, they paid with their lives. Mm-hmm. So so let's start there. And then for hopefully the discussion can then be more complex and more, more nuanced. Yeah. Can, can you lean into your Swedish brethren and perhaps have the Swedish football team, I don't know, you know, perform a stunt on behalf of you with the cards, for mm. instance. Um, because I know it's yeah. super high risk to mm. any official yeah. involved with the cup to do this. Yeah, yeah. But if ethically they feel so mm. compelled, yeah. which it's very possible that someone might be, mm. um, I mean, that would be yeah. a hugely impactful way to generate attention to this which is ultimately the story of the yeah. migrant workers and the conditions there. Yeah. I mean, we tried to reach out to a lot of football players. Many have really strict contracts where they are not allowed to uh, basically say anything or do anything, uh, which is really interesting. I didn't know uh, that they were so restricted in, in what they're allowed to do. Uh, there's also this, I mean, I haven't, you know, David Beckham is... is uh, I mean, officially bought by Qatar to talk about the World <laughs> Cup. Uh, but then you have a lot of players who also been paid by Qatar to stay silent. Uh, they are on, you know... Wow, is that a case? They're receiving, you know, payments. Hush money. To, yeah, in a way. Oh, my goodness. And uh, so it's been difficult to find football players, especially active ones, that are prepared to, to speak out. Uh, there are some unique cases like Tim Sparv, the f- former captain of the Finnish football team. Okay. Uh, he, you know, went to Qatar uh, on a on a training uh, camp and got asked a lot of hard questions from journalists. And I mean, 
is an intellectual, you know, thinking, reading guy and was like, felt, I, I don't have the answers to these questions. Migrant workers and human rights and, you know, was used to a- answer about, you know, the results only. So he started to uh, to contact migrant workers, talk to them and, and really, you know, did his homework. And then he wrote a letter to FIFA and to the football community a year ago where he basically, you know, uh, said that we need to talk about Qatar and we need to talk about the situation for for human rights in Qatar. I mean, that was that was beyond brave, uh, and hopefully that can inspire more people to take a stand. Right. Uh, yeah. But he was, I mean, I'd say he was unique. Uh, there has been a couple of others that are not active but are retired professional players. Uh, but it's, uh, so... Maybe, but there's also, um, if you look to the states, you have a lot of, I mean, um, big sports athletes that are political in a way that will take a stand and will have opinions. Yeah. Uh, in Europe, that's still kind of a no-go. And youth, <laughs> you know, traditionally they don't do that. Though you had Ibrahimovic now uh, sitting next to Berlusconi <laughs> this morning on the yeah, Instagram. Yeah, but Zlatan right? so, loves Milan. So, you know. <laughs> so, so maybe there's more emotional than a political explanation to that. I don't know. Um, but still, it, it's rare. Uh, but yeah, hopefully more more people will, like Tim Sparv, um, yeah. actually speak uh, speak out because uh, they have a huge, you know, following and and they could really do so much more than just win games. Uh, these players if they want to use their voice and and perhaps as well just uh, uh, the taste left in everyone's mouth throughout the tournament and after would just be one of slime and almost guilt for having participated in watching this and enjoying it because the common denominator across everything is bucket's of money mm, yeah. and the numerator on each individual cause is Ethical problem, ethical problem, yeah, ethical yeah. problem, yeah. corrupt ethics, yeah, yeah. but yeah. the money. For instance, yeah. David Beckham, yeah. when I saw that video of him promoting it, mm. I, I couldn't put my head, I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't put my head around it. Yeah. He's already got more money than he ever needs in his entire yeah. life. Yeah. Why on earth attach yourself mm-hmm. to one of the slimiest things that's ever happened in your sport? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess yeah. shit loads of money wins at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing with Saudi Arabia and the Live Golf. Um, tournament I don't know if you've seen this but I mean I I don't want to pass judgment on the players because I think if I was in their position Mm. what would I do if I was offered a hundred million dollars to to show up you know but yeah Mm. I guess the common denominator is shitloads of pinger yeah yeah no but then you know also you have uh, people tend to forget about you know the fans because without them there would be no football industry uh, there would be no one you know watching the games or uh, and i think that more and more fans feel the power that they uh, i mean the power in numbers in a way and they were able to stop the super league uh, mm-hmm. uh, and you know they will yeah they also have the power to uh, in a way, to stop the World Cup in Qatar from from taking place, if yeah. there really would be a, a you know a, a, a worldwide boycott, yeah, that then, would be something. <laughs> but then, maybe you also tend to see the discussion from from a European point of view. I mean, uh, in other countries and nations, you don't have the reporting about Qatar as as we have in in Sweden. You know, in many, you know local debates it's 
the human rights situation in Qatar, it's it's not an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so well, yeah. uh, that's you know once again a reminder of uh, yeah maybe the status of journalism in in the world in a way. Um, yeah, but also just uh, uh, local cultural differences. Yeah, yeah. Um, which isn't to pass a judgment on different cultures, but just where. Uh, in your hierarchy of mm. things that that get to your attention, yeah, yeah. Um, you know where it is less mm. uh, egalitarian, yeah, yeah, <laughs> somewhere yeah. like Northern Europe. Yeah, uh, it's more just taken on in stride. Yeah, yeah shit. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of corruption there. Yeah, yeah. Next news, please. Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think you have about a hundred of these cards, yeah. hundred stories. Yeah. Um, you mentioned at the beginning that the Guardian reported as much as six and a half thousand dead. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any really insightful uh, figure for how many have died? I mean, it, it depends on how you how you count the numbers. Uh, the Guardian figure was based on uh, reports from from embassies, and if and you looked at okay from this date in 2010 when Qatar was awarded the World Cup up until. Uh, 2019 or what it was and now we you know there's two more years to add to that uh, and then you look at okay how many people died in Qatar during this period of time and they came up with the with the figure 6500 the Guardian didn't say that these people died building the arenas but that became you know through whispers and through rewrites that became kind of the truth that 6500 people had died being building the World Cup arenas mm-hmm. And I mean that that would have been grotesque, you know. People would, you know, fall, you know, hundreds a day. You know, it, it's just not possible if you think of it, you know. It so these are people that died from, you know, car accidents to cancers to uh, uh, all sorts of, you know, uh, suicides. A lot of suicides, a lot of mental illness, and and then the question is, okay, can you, you know, can you blame the World Cup for these people dying? Would they have died if they were if they had stayed in Nepal or India or Bangladesh, or, or did Qatar contribute to their death? Mm-hmm. And this is the ongoing discussion between Qatar and many many journalists for the last you know five six years. Uh, is this figure you know high or is it low? How many people would have died you know within a 2.7 million population during a 10 year time? Mm-hmm then maybe 6,000 is not a high number. Uh, and it's like the COVID discussion. You know, how many died from COVID-19? Is Sweden, uh, you know, a positive or, a, you know, a terrible example? It all depends on how, you know, how you look at the figures. So, and I felt that, you know, what we wanted to do was get away from that statistic fight and just look at the cases, talk to the families, and then... What we could see quite early on is that there are so many cases where no one knows why they died. They die in their sleep uh, and they often have complained about being sick, being forced to work while they're sick, uh, working uh, long, long days, eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours in, in you know, uh, 38, 40 degrees uh, Celsius of, of, of temperature, uh, not drinking enough water, uh, and I mean, according to uh, researchers and, and academic, that is that could be a cause of death. You know, actually, that I mean, you work 
you work so hard so the body it just it can't manage the heat and then you die during your sleep mm. uh, there are no autopsies taking place the bodies are you know quickly uh, packed into coffins and then sent back to to their home countries uh, or you know buried in uh, buried in Qatar um, so so one of the question mark is really I mean why did they die if Qatar wanted to find out why these people died I mean they have one of the most advanced healthcare uh, departments in the world uh, they could have done that but they have chosen not not to do there are no I mean there are no autopsies there are not even in most cases any real you know examination into what happened at the workplace or or any yeah kind of legal process taking taking place uh, that is the pattern that you know um, that 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 we could see talk, talking to the families. Uh, so I mean, in Cards of Qatar, we tried just you know to tell the stories and and to tell as many stories as possible, and then we could see some patterns. The journalist that I know who has been closest to actually answering the question, you know, how many died and how many are related to World Cup constructions. Um, it's an English guy called Nick Harris. Uh, he managed to get all the 15,000 names, because according to Qatar official statistics, during this 10 years time, there are 15,000 deaths. So he looked at every case. It took him over a year, you know, in Excel, and he went through every, 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 every wow. case. And he took away the cancer, and he took away the, the accidents, and he took away the road accidents, and just kept, you know, the workplace. And his number was uh, between 2,500 and 3,000 that are, you know, construction, uh, roads, um, arenas, um, hotels, uh, um, Service related well? to Qatar. Domestic and things like this? No, 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 I think he took those away. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, you could you could go down that way. He did. Uh, he he had Qatar's lawyers all over him and the newspaper, but he published a week ago in, in Mail on Sunday, I think, uh, uh, a story where, cool. where it concludes that, that figure. So right, right. Um, what surprised me, I mean, looking at the statistics, is actually not... Uh, those who, who who died at the workplace, because I knew I would found those cases. It's the amount of suicides. There are so many suicides, mm. uh, both in Qatar, but also once they come back home in in South Asia, they really? came back home without you know taking their family out of poverty. You know, getting back to your village, having just you know money to to pay for a new roof and then it's finished and then you spent eight years away from your wife uh you you missed your kids growing up they are grown-ups now you when you left they were they were they were children uh and that is something that i mean that really shocked me and that i'm i'm st i'm i'm actually now working on on seeing a pattern in this and the mental illness in this group i think it's just a huge and also talking to some of the labor organizations, I asked about this, and and there was one guy from the Philippines and one from from Bangladesh, and both said that no, suicide is not in our culture, uh, and that you know made me even more convinced that this is really you know this is really uh, something that is not talking about even by the you know labor rights organizations, mm -hmm. but it's just there as a hidden cost also of this World Cup. And thinking of it, I mean. 
I mean, some people I, t I talk to, they spent 15 years in Qatar. And then you come back after 15 years. You know, everything has changed. Your whole country has changed. Uh, you missed so much, you know. You missed all those birthdays, all those, you know, anniversaries. Um, everything. Critical think, identity yeah, problems. exactly, exactly. So that... Uh, that that price is, yeah, that that really surprised me, and is something that I will try to look into more. And also all the suicides in uh, you know in Qatar, yeah. um, often you know just before going home or just before the contracts finished, or so people will be found you know hanging in the shower or um, found by their their coworkers at mm -hmm. at their houses and so on. Mm -hmm. The cause of death issue is uh, a strong theme in what you've been writing as well. Mm. So you, you just spoke about the suicide mm. aspect of it, yeah. but as well, all of this sort of inexplicable heart failure yeah. among young, healthy men yeah. and women. Mm. Um, are you suggesting that this is just a sort of slap on cause of death when they don't want to reveal what the cause of death is? Say, you know, trauma to the head because he fell off something for instance i think it's a practical thing for the air companies in order to take a dead body on an airplane you need a paper and you need a uh, a stamp on that paper that says why did this person die mm. uh, so it's 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 a practicality in nepal that they would just put natural cause of death then put the body on an airplane and then just fly it back to south asia problem solved uh, so I don't think that anyone considered this as a natural cause of death, uh, young people dying. And also before they went to Qatar, they all go through a medical exam. Yeah. Uh, most companies also before they do their first days at work, they go through a medical exam. So these are people that are considered healthy and who are just employed in their best years. And they, then they, they, they die, they are, they are found dead in their sleep. So of course this is beyond natural. <laughs> this is not at all natural uh, for for them to die. But it's 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 just the bureaucracy that uh, uh, that forces the Qatar Airways and other you know air companies to they need this paper paperwork done to to put the body on the flight and then right. it's it's just the most practical thing to write because yeah. if you would write you know. Uh, something else that would imply that oh this needs to be checked up in a local court or if you would write murder that would also you know call the alarm yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know cause of death or cause of death you know um, falling from a high-rise building yeah then you know there would be someone investigated who might be responsible for not taking all the safety precautions and of course they want to to avoid that it must have been you did allude to it early it must have been so much work to definitively get the life stories out of these people mm. to, to, to contact them yeah. the families go to locate them speak mm. to them have the translator yeah. get all the permissions for over a hundred different people mm. this is uh, really an extraordinary effort mm. um, talk a little bit about how long you've been doing this story and and um, you know your experience and how much effort it has been to do yeah I mean we started in the autumn 2020 so yeah that's about two years uh, from now mm. so yeah it yeah two years 
Maybe we started in the summer, actually, summer 2020. Uh, so about two and a half years. Uh, and we also had local journalists then in, in India and uh, two teams, two different teams in Bangladesh and then in Nepal. Two, two different journalists and then myself also going to Nepal looking looking for cases uh, so yeah, it took it took time uh, but I also think that all we had the World Cup as our deadline so we knew that this might take a year or so to uh, to collect all these stories uh, and after publishing them we were also hoping to get more stories from from other journalists or from NGOs or from trade unions and so on. And it has started to happen that uh, we published a couple of more that uh, were, you know, other journalists had written about and, and send us. So hopefully that will also continue. So it could be like a crowdsourcing process where, where we can tell more and more stories leading up to the World Cup. Uh, but I'd say most, after we found the lists from uh, the different government bodies handing out, um, uh, how do you say, compensation. Uh, when we found those lists and could call people from those lists, everything was, I mean, that up, up to that point, we were, you know, more like looking in the dark, uh, trying to find, uh, art, you know, articles in local newspapers or, you know, uh, calling calling cases but where we found the lists you know we had a method then we could call the lists and then visit people on the lists uh, so that was I mean the breakthrough process when we managed to get the lists uh, which made the process easier in in in, in the countries yeah, yeah. it's it's interesting mm. just for me to sort of project onto um, the work of the investigative journalism yeah, yeah. because in two years um, a couple of articles have been produced on this, but yeah. the amount of work mm, that mm. goes into developing that story and having it original and exclusive mm. uh, is quite something, yeah, you know. Yeah. And so this is for blankspot.sc. Yeah. Yeah. How do you finance it? How, how does that business work? How much do you sort of front load the costs of this mm. story? Or do you get some sort of um, funding beforehand? Or is this old profits that are reinvested and then you may... Yeah create some sort of money off the story later i mean how do the economics <laughs> of it all work? i wish i wish i had an answer <laughs> to that uh, but i mean and, and basically of, of course in the in the end when you have all the material you're afraid that someone else has done exactly the same thing you know, right. <laughs> you know soon yeah. soon um, publishing but um we started off early we went to there's this because uh, of course you have to think I mean, as a freelance, I'm used to, you know, you do the work, you found the stories, and then I know that good things will be published and you will be able to sell it. So, so I have, I mean, I've been working as a, as a freelance journalist before starting Blank Spot for, I don't know, how many years <laughs> since ever. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, I never, uh, some people are good at, you know, pitching in advance and, you know, uh, but I've, I worked in the opposite way, you know, just going to countries and then trying to find stories because you never know what you will find. And the problem with pitching a story is that you're kind of locked then in, into that narrative. And if that's not the situation on the ground, maybe the story is totally different. You would still have to, you know, uh, 
make some magic and find those cases that would fit that narrative in a way. So I've been always working the other way around, you know, just, you know, having time and going around and finding stories. And then I know that I have the ability to write them in a way that they will be, you know, published in Swedish media. So so it was, but now, you know, working with, with Blank Spot, it's a bit um, different since we also try to find, of course, media partners when we have something big, but we also have our, you know, core readers and uh, that will you know, uh, pay us monthly or annually some contribution for us to do our work. We don't have any paywall or anything, but uh, some people on our mailing lists will, you know, donate money for us to, for us to do the work. But that is quite a small sum. And so for this project, we we understood that it will cost a lot. Especially, we wanted to pay the local reporters. I mean, well, really well, uh, since you know we're doing a story about migrant workers. We you know, also wanted to, to <laughs> you don't take to, advantage no, of some exactly, in the process exactly exactly and also uh, to get them along and explain the the whole idea for them early on uh, so then but we went to a football app called Forza Football and the CEO of that app I've seen him you know talking about the role of the football industry and that the football could be a force for good so I approached him with this idea and said that we are we have started to collect stories. Uh, we have this idea to present them as cards. Would this be something that you would be interested in in uh, you know making happening? I, and uh, and he was really interested. So we had, and he also said that once these articles are published, we could send them to our to our users on this app. The app is basically an app where you get football scores in in uh, live, so people will. Just report scores and uh, unusual. Uh, so it's an unusual partner. Yeah. But uh, he had this. Uh, how do you say? Uh, uh, no, his heart was really in, you know, football as a force for good, right. and this was also a way for us to reach fans in a way. Mm. So he came along, and then uh, we also asked. Uh, I mean. One, uh, how do you say, um, like layout design um, company, uh, could you do the design? And they agreed to do the design pro bono because uh, oh, they nice. really liked the idea. Yeah. Uh, so then we had, you know, two, two wonderful partners uh, that, yeah, that that made it possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we were supposed to publish on February twenty four together also with a Swedish media partner. But then we all know what happened on the 24th of February. Russia attacked, uh, you know, Ukraine. So everything was postponed and, and we lost the Swedish uh, media partner. Oh, but then shame. eventually, you know, choose to uh, just publish on, on the site that we built, Cards of Qatar. Uh, yeah. So and, and translate thing. And then we managed to find Eleven Freunde, which is a German uh, football newspaper and a paper in Czechoslovakia. And now there is a a French magazine and and uh, Norwegian magazine and also there's this uh, um, community called Swedish fans, which were really really super interested in the material. So we also have a partnership with them now, where they could rewrite and republish uh, the stories. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, now just this morning, uh, I I got an email with the layout of the cards and that Pressbyrån, uh, the 
um, yeah, where most people, uh, I mean, they have shops over all of Stockholm, like 7-Eleven, uh, you could say. Uh, they agreed to put the, the cards next to the official Panini cards. Uh, so they will be That's you know, really next powerful. to the Panini cards. Yeah. And, uh, and what's a Panini card? Panini card is like the official Qatari with the real football players. Yes, perfect. So you would have the football players and then next to them, uh, which I just got an email with a picture of like a box that was designed with with the cards in small packages mm-hmm. that will be then be... I think the idea is now to uh, to give them away, like to hand them out, not to sell yeah. them. Sure, yeah. Um, with a QR we'll code on exactly, it that takes exactly. you to a blank spot. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That, that would be the idea 100%. So, That's amazing. So, I mean, yeah, two and a half years ago, I didn't even think we would have physical cards. Yes. Just see it as a and that's something... Way, and yeah. now, eventually, the, the story grows and... and um, the only new thing for me as you know being a reporter is also handling as you say like okay how do we finance this <laughs> but <laughs> at the end of the day we always made made sure yeah. we yeah. we found a way uh, but it's not uh, it's not easy you just have to trust trust the material material you have and, and the idea yeah. and the stories and and eventually it will somehow it will you know you know work out yeah. and um again uh, the people listening have to click on the link at the top and and just see what it is we're talking about because it is such an original way. You're not telling the story through the cards, but you're generating the attention and Mm. delivering the message through them. And from there, you can read the longer stories and understand the depth um, behind everything that we've been speaking about so far in this. But I'm looking now, Mm. we're doing this for an hour and a half and I plan on talking to you about one other giant story in your life. So, you know... You hassle um, editing it then. Yeah, no. um, But... (laughs) easy part is talking. What about... to round this off, Cards yeah. of Guitar, mm. FIFA World Cup, yeah. Doha. Mm. What is your goal when you go there? Because you're going to be there, I think it starts in November, right? Yeah. So you're going to be there. You're going to be handing out the cards. You're going to be trying to put shame on the sponsors of the event. Yes. And the officials, I suppose, running the event. Yes. So yes. Um, talk us through what you're planning on doing. I mean, I'm planning first to go to Zurich, to FIFA. Uh, they have received the cards, but they haven't responded. So I have to go there and knock the door uh, myself <laughs> and, and uh, get their comment on the stories in the cards. And then uh, I plan to go to uh, to Doha in Qatar and also to try and, um, and get interviews with officials and get their comment on... You know, what, what could have been done to prevent these, these deaths? Because these people will no longer be there when when the world cup is uh you know when the judge starts the first first game ecuador against against qatar these people died you know but they died uh building things and and making this world cup possible uh so i think in a way you know shame is a strong world i'm not i'm not accusing them for for the death of these people uh I'm not accusing them for murder, but I want them to learn the names of these people and the names of their children, and I want them to to remember these people, and I want to hear their thoughts of how to make sure that you know this this never happens again, and and what are their thoughts on the future of these mega sports events, and and what what have they learned so that these people you know won't just disappear. Uh, 
and also for for fans to, to learn the names i think it's important because it's not just you know migrant workers or construction workers or thousands of dead i think that they need to know that okay who was anishgurung you know why did he leave uh, gandrung his village what i mean was his dreams and his ambitions i, I think that's what i want to do with with the cards um, and the stories mm. and then we will see if they you know i still haven't received my my journalist visa for guitar, <laughs> if they if they, uh, if they let me in yeah sure um one other thing actually before we yeah. round it out you say that you shame might be the wrong word because of course we're well, not maybe ac- shame is the right word it's we're, we're not, not accusing mur- them of murder no but no. what we are accusing them of of course they have a responsibility you know sponsors uh, i mean you have uh, coca-cola if you read their you know ethical investment policies there is a lot of you know fine words but still they sponsor this event and and you have all these unexplained causes of death and, and people not returning to their families mm-hmm. You know, I want to hear their opinion on that. You have Budweiser, uh, you have, uh, uh, of course, Qatar Airways, and, and those companies might be more difficult to, to get hold of. You have Adidas and so on. Mm-hmm. And I actually received a response from Adidas the other day uh, where they say that, well, it's not, we have nothing to do with putting the World Cup in Qatar. You know, it's not our decision. Yeah, but it's still your decision to sponsor the event yes, and, to and thereby yes. to promote it yes. and, and thereby making it possible. But it's interesting that they actually replied. And it's also interesting that four of the sponsors have now said that they think FIFA should pay uh, compensation to a fund that could go to the migrant workers' families. Interesting. Yeah, so wow. that has happened just last week. Uh, and I mean, in a way, that it shows that... Uh, the you know you know <laughs> that the drop can can damage the stone <laughs> you know it just needs to, uh, uh, that's a very that something something a very is English happening translation uh, maybe <laughs> <what> <laughs> sorry yeah, yeah here, but I think yeah uh, we understand you understand what I mean yeah. you know eventually all these articles all these stories all these testimonies it's starting to take a toll also yes. on the sponsors yeah. it's starting to feel uh, that they are getting criticized now and and uh, it's interesting that they are now, uh, you know, changed, not just saying, whoa, we have nothing to do with this, but saying that, well, the migrant families should be compensated, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is huge. Yeah, 100%. And which shows that it's important now to just keep on pushing and keep on asking questions yeah. for the last, you know, weeks that are left now for and, the World Cup. And as I think about it, I remember in um, for the Beijing Olympics, but then as well the Rio de Janeiro Olympics, mm. Uh, one of the main topics of conversation that shroud both of those events was local conditions and the human rights violations of yeah. the countries, China yeah. more specifically, in working conditions in, in, in Brazil. Yeah. And I don't think people remember anything else from those no, events. No, no. And it definitely stained the Olympics. Mm, so mm, perhaps yeah. after all of this just endless financial corruption, mm. there is as well now, they're in bed with... We're making the case yeah, for yeah. you know uh, human rights violators. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, as we come closer to it, in a year that's had mm. a war, fucking crazy stuff in the financial markets, yeah. maybe that drowns out a lot of the media. Yeah. But as it mm. comes in, you know, maybe this is really going to take off, and yeah. Um, yeah. 
the Kazakata will be spoken of in yeah, yeah, every sure. every corner of the for world, sure, feasibly. Sure. I, yeah. I think the FIFA World Cup is yeah. bigger than the Olympics. I yeah. think it is actually the most yeah. viewed tournament yeah. in the world, right? Yeah. On the on the mm. on the calendar. So Yeah, yeah um, and if the legacy is the all the the migrant workers who, who died on their jobs, mm. of course that uh, it's a, it will change the yes. equation for future host countries. What about one word on the financial corruption piece? Mm. Um, what have you learned about it that you know we, as a just casual consumer, don't already know? Um, I mean, for me, my many sports journalists are much better at looking at the financial corruption within FIFA. I don't think I ever spelled FIFA on my key, my <laughs> in, in an article before <laughs> before this. I mean, f- my my angle getting into the. Uh, the World Cup was my experiences in South Asia and Southeast Asia, and and uh, having written about migrant workers. Uh, so of course, the corruption happened early on. I mean, it happened uh, you know years back, and the people who who actually bribed officials for this World Cup to c- take place in Qatar, many of them has have also been prosecuted from for mostly for other things than actually the the Qatar decision but still they were the same the same people mm. uh, so I'm I haven't in a way you have a lot of sports journalists writing about Qatar and they are experts on FIFA and corruption and and the whole sports industry I you know I'm a foreign reporter who comes from South Asia and who never written about sport before <laughs> now I'm mm-hmm. I'm into the field from uh from meeting from meeting the families, yep. so uh, when it comes to corruption and the trials, I, I've seen them. I've I've noticed them. Four hundred thirty-eight days. Four hundred thirty-eight days. Precisely. Yes. Set the stage a bit. When did this happen? Where was it? Why are you there? Back in two thousand eleven. Uh, we have an, a region in uh, the Horn of Africa, in the eastern parts of Ethiopia, called Ogaden. I had met a lot of refugees from uh, from Ogaden. Um, there were refugees who were met in refugee camps, in uh, also in Nairobi, uh, in Sweden. And the stories these refugees were telling me were really, really horrible. There were stories of villages being burnt down. There were stories of... Uh, systematic rape uh, there were stories on i mean gross human rights violations in this area at the same time this you know summer of 2011 there's a lot written about a swedish linked oil company called africa oil and they have bought the right to look for oil in the same region from where the refugees are fleeing in the Ogaden region but in the swedish kind of business newspapers this is just described as a huge opportunity to earn a lot of money. Like buy these stocks, uh, they will soon find oil. This is a unique opportunity. Uh, and that's where the, I'd say the story kind of started. On the one hand, we had these refugee stories. On the other hand, we had this uh, Swedish linked oil company talking about the possibilities of getting rich. And. I mean, that's sometimes the case as a journalist. You have this story on one hand, on the other hand, and in the end, time will tell. But then, I mean, I see as one of the main roles for, for a reporter is to find out, you know, who's telling the truth, who's lying. 
whose version of the truth is correct in the Ogaden region. So together with the photographer, uh, Johan Persson, uh, we decided to go there and to see for ourselves. How is the situation here? What do the villages say about the Swedish-linked oil company? Uh, it turned out to be impossible since this area was sealed off from the world. No one was let in. Uh, you know, the Red Cross was kicked out. Doctors without borders were kicked out. Foreign diplomats were kicked out. Uh, journalists who tried to enter were arrested and kicked out. So, in a, in a way, this made us even more, you know, concerned. What's going on here? You know, what's happening? You know, in the Ogaden region, uh, all these people fleeing. The Swedish oil company on their way in, and then there was also a conflict. If you look at the map, you could see that the east part of Ethiopia, it's a border to Somalia drawn with, you know, a ruler on a, on a table, you know, in Europe in yeah. late 19th century. Uh, so it's, it's really not, it doesn't represent, you know, the historical or religious or, you know, cultural um, situation on the ground. And then you had a rebel movement, the ONLF. They were fighting for independence or for a referendum, actually, so that the inhabitants could vote. Like, should we be part of Ethiopia? Should we be part of Somalia? Should we be our own country? Uh, but basically, they were fighting against the Ethiopian federal military. So we had two choices to get in. You know, either in a way trying to persuade the Ethiopian army to take us to these uh, future oil fields, which we doubted were you know impossible they just wouldn't you know let any journalist in so they we then we approached the the rebels uh, they were terrorist labeled in in ethiopia but not in europe so they had an office in london we flew there and uh, talked to them about the possibilities you know entering illegally into ethiopia uh, and we made a plan together with the rebels that we will fly to somalia to a city called Galkayu and we would uh, hire a, a smuggler there that would take us across the border and then inside Ethiopia we would meet up with a rebel group and they would be our guides and take us to the oil fields. So yeah, that were the basic, <laughs> the plan. <laughs> what a uh, plan. Yeah, yeah. so and uh, I mean everything every, I've been asked, you know, many times, like, do you regret uh, going in? And of course, you know, knowledge in 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 hindsight, it's not so impressive. But of course, with all I knew, you know, what happened, I would get shot, I would get mock executed, I would be sentenced to 11 years for supporting terrorism, I would sp spend more than 14 months in the notorious Kaliti jail. If I knew everything, of course, I wouldn't cross that border. Uh, but there at that time we had these stories from the refugees and we felt that you know no one else is doing this job we have a swedish linked oil company we have refugees you know pouring out of this region something is happening in here and it's our responsibility as swedish journalists to find out you know what's what's this company doing what's their role in this civil war and uh, yeah at that time we choose to to cross the border and immediately things you know go wrong. Uh, we cross at night time and uh, after a while I see this, we are supposed to be alone in the desert, uh, but I see these lights from a Land Rover or, or some Jeep, you know, at the horizon. You know, and I look at the driver and I'm like, are these the guys meeting us? And he looks at me 
with like panic in his face and then just steps on it, you know. And then there is this crazy car hunt which goes on for two, three hours where we try to shake them off. And uh, eventually, I mean, when you drive in Sweden, there's this thing called snow smoke. Like there's so much snow coming up from the, the rear wheels so that you are blinded by your own uh, light, like the following car. That happens with the sand as well after a while. So uh, we managed to to drive away from from the Ethiopian army that are chasing us. And uh, suddenly the the driver, you know, just stops, uh, opens the door, throws his Kalashnikov to the ground and just, you know, runs out <laughs> in, in <laughs> you know, towards the horizon. And, uh, you know, we are sitting in the back seat and I, uh, you know, take my recorder and, and, and the video camera and like, okay, what's what's happening? You know, we are just left left here in the desert. And then eventually we hear voices and uh, there's this, you know, uh, soldier, uh, doesn't look like a soldier, looks like, you know, young Bob Marley or Rastafari <laughs> opening the door and like, uh, oh, assalamu alaikum, oh, alaikum assalam, oh, are you the journalist? Say yes. And then those are the rebels and they're like, quick, quick, we need to run. So they burn the car uh, and then we just run, you know, from there. And then it's like three days and three nights of running, trying to escape uh, the Ethiopian army because they are onto our tracks. And, uh, you know, we walk in circles and we do all kind of tricks like rabbits, you know, trying to get away from the fox. Uh, and, yeah, we run out of water and uh, just, you know, keep going, keep going. In the beginning, we just walk, you know, during the night, but then we have to walk both during the day and during the night to get away. And, yeah, sometimes we see the cars like searching for us. We could see the lights. And eventually we we reached the area where the rebels say that, you know, we are safe. And we start to do some interviews. We could talk to the commander. We start talking to villages and villagers and uh, uh, get a sense that, you know, the conflict level in this area is, is so much higher than what we anticipated. You know, the, it's a war basically going on here. Uh, and if you enter a war zone as a foreign oil company, there might be, you know, consequences when your security is based on an army that might commit, you know, crimes and that might lead to that the company will be asked questions about their role in this. So we feel that this is really a story to tell. Uh, and then, you know, the rebels are really relaxed. They make a fire, they make bread and we get water finally. And then suddenly I hear you know, a, sh a gunshot going off, a Kalashnikov. And I just think to myself, you know, good God, let this be someone just flicking with this gun, you know, an accident. Uh, and then, you know, everything just explodes with Kalashnikov fire and machine gun fire. And we are attacked by about 300 Ethiopian soldiers. And the rebels, you know, they run like this. And they take our stuff with them, the cameras and computers and things, which we have intentionally. Intentionally, yeah, we talked about it before. If this happens, they say if we are attacked, we are outnumbered. I mean, that's the rebel ABC uh, playbook. So if they meet the army in the open, they know they are outnumbered, so they just run. And our chances to survive is not to run like the rebels, but to try and you know 
just put our hands in the hair and surrender ourselves, which is rather difficult because it's a kind of bushy area. We are, you know, in a in a place where it's the visibility is very low. You can see maybe five ten meters, and then there are a lot of bushes which they were kind of hiding inside. So there are, you know, you heard gunshots firing many times, but I never heard this sound of bullets, you know, passing your head. It's like more of a zing, 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 zing. It's a sound you don't want to hear because you really feel that I'm the wrong, I'm on the wrong, I'm on the wrong side of this. Uh, so it's, I mean, it's a, it's a chaotic situation uh, where you have these shouts and you have this gunpowder smoke and smell of gunpowder, and then quite quickly I'm shot in the shoulder. Uh, I see Johan, the photographer, he's shot through the arm. So I can just see this big splash of blood, you know, all over the uh, the sand from his arm. And uh, yes, I just put one finger in the hole where the bullet went in and then another finger where the bullet went out and try to raise the other hand you know, above my head and just shout like media, media, don't shoot. And uh, then I see a soldier uh, coming up to me and he, you know, he doesn't shoot, but he turns his gun the other way and just, you know, knocks me with the back of his gun towards my head. Yeah. And then, you know, I fell down in the sand. And yeah, that's where the story about oil dies, you could say. <laughs> it dies there in the sand. And uh, in the beginning, of course, I mean, there are thousands of things that go through your head. Like, okay, how do I make these people understand that I'm a journalist and not a terrorist, you know, because you could see that they're really scared. Uh, so I remember talking football with them, like asking, what's your favorite team? Uh, and like Sweden, uh, and I'm like, oh, do you know, uh, do you know Ibrahimovic? Uh, <laughs> and I remember this solely looking at me like, Slatan. <laughs> like, yes, yes. He's a brother from another mother. And the soldier's <laughs> like, you big nose too. <laughs> and then, you know, yeah, like bonding with him. And he's like, sorry, I shot you. And I'm like, it's okay. It's okay. Shit happens. Yeah. So anyway, Zlatan saved my life in, in that uh, yeah, chaotic situation. Uh, and then, I mean, we kind of expect that, okay, this is a misunderstanding that will be sorted out. We will be kicked out. They will take us to the embassy. Uh, it will be embarrassing for them for shooting two foreign journalists, but yeah, shit happens. But that's really not what's what's happening. Uh, instead, they fly down their regional uh, vice president, and he decides to spend the the coming three four days making a mockumentary, like with a film team where he, I mean, basically fabricates evidence that will be used in a court to sentence us for supporting terrorism. So he wants us to say certain things in front of the camera. When we don't agree, he threatens to, to deny us antibiotics for our wounds. And he also arranges a mock execution to make us cooperate. And uh, yeah, so also takes like civilians we've never seen before and say, these are your rebel friends. Uh, these are the terrorists you are supporting and s totally surreal days in the desert. And then when they are finished with that, they eventually take us to, to Addis Ababa, the capital of, of, uh, of Ethiopia. Uh, so, and the rest, 
I mean, it's uh, it's not a story about oil, but a story about you know trying to survive in that prison, about press freedom, about uh, meeting local journalists in in that same situation. Um, basically, yeah, trying to survive for yeah the four hundred mm-hmm. days that are uh, that are left. Yeah, is it sort of uh, traumatic for you to to think about? those times i can hear like a slight quiver in the voice when you talk about the mock execution and and being shot and so forth um it's been now 10 10 10 11 years yeah Yeah. so how how does it sit with you now i mean it's it's interesting how it it goes from being an experience to being like notes in a diary hidden in the prison to a published book uh and now you know a story with like a beginning, a middle, and an end, and and a bit of humor, and it's you know, so it's in a way it's been it's it's been very processed, you know. And I'm lucky to have done many interviews, I mean, in Swedish about it. Uh, so that's been a way of handling it, you know, talking about it, mm. which I think is important. But as you say, the difficult part was really the mock execution part and that's the part i don't really you know go into detail i guess i could but i choose not to because uh, that was kind of more traumatic you know being in jail as a jail journalist of course yeah it's tough and you know there's no justice and <laughs> so on but but you're not afraid that you will die and mm. um, during the some days in the desert i actually thought that you know this is my last this is on my last minutes on this earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, of course, there's a difference between those traumatic experience and kind of, yeah, just the pain and uh, shitty experience of being jailed. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, there is there is a difference. But no, it's not it's not traumatic to talk about. I'm also, I mean, extremely privileged. Had I been Somali or Ethiopian, I would have been shot in the desert. Right. Uh, I would still be there. So that's, uh, but I lived and that comes with the responsibility also to to witness and to, I've survived meeting this army in the desert. Many Mm -hmm. people weren't that lucky Mm. and couldn't tell the story. So that's why it's also been important to to tell that, uh, yeah, to Mm. tell that story in a way. And when you catch up with Johan Persson, how much of this sort of brotherly, comradeship do you have for having gone through such an amazingly unique but bonding experience i mean before this assignment we didn't know each other we shared the same freelance office in hagerstein in stockholm uh, and i think that was a good thing because we got to know each other under these kind of extreme circumstances, you know, taking these life and death decisions together. Mm. Should we do this? Should we do that? Uh, and, you know, I'm really proud of how we handled prison and how we handled everything during these 14 months. Uh, once we were free, you know, this pressure kind of disappeared. And, I mean, the first month you once slept at my couch and, we we went to back to the Horn of Africa. Actually, we went to Eritrea together and did stories. Uh, but it's been like, you know, what we have together is a trauma. 
So we we like to hang out, but we also get really, you know, depressed <laughs> uh, being with each other. And after a while, we felt that no, you know, let's just you know divorce. We have Ethiopia as a common child or something that experience, but we. I mean, I see him maybe you know once every second year or something at some journalist thing, mm-hmm. but we are not. You would think that you are this, I mean, like super tight forever. And of course we are. If I would, you know, go to prison again, I would immediately, you know, call you one. You could join me in the cell. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be in prison with anyone else. It was the best, really. Uh, but uh, it's more, it's, uh, the relationship in freedom, I'd say is more, it was easier to, to have a relationship in prison. Than it is in 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 freedom, mm. um, in a way. But so we do our things that, but we don't do them together. Okay. You know, in a way. And what about Lundin Petroleum yeah. and Mr. Carl Bildt, yeah. who I noticed still has a very big profile and was featured at the elections recently on SVT. So. Yeah. What's he's your one of, yeah, he's one of the names as maybe our future foreign minister again. He's mm-hmm. one of the names being discussed now after our elections. I mean, for me, it's a mystery that he put himself on that board. I mean, having his experience and his background, there are so many organizations, so many jobs he could have taken, and he chose to get in this, you know, small, very, very... Uh, Maybe small is the wrong world, but special oil company. I mean, this is an oil company that's they were kicked out of apartheid South Africa. Uh, uh, they were kicked out of, of Congo. Uh, they did business with uh, Assad in Syria. You know, they're one of the founders, Adolf Lundin. Adolf, by the way, was his name. Uh, he had this motto like "No guts, no glory." Yeah, my God. So they go into. And they are a bit, you know, like freelancers in a way. You know, they go into conflict zones yeah. where no other like normal oil company would go. And they try to find oil and gas and then build up some kind of uh, business and then sell it off. So it's really a, a high risk, high reward business that they have been doing for, for many, many years. Uh, and they were also active in uh, in Sudan uh, during the the war in Sudan. They were especially active in a block called 5A, where 160,000 people were um, forced to leave, and uh, thousands were, 20 or 30,000 people were killed. Oh uh, and I've never even heard of that. No, and uh, eventually they left Sudan, uh, but there were so many reports of what happened in this block 5A during their time in Sudan. So. Now there's actually a unique criminal case in in the, the first court in Stockholm uh, where they are asked questions for for uh, I mean violating uh, humanitarian law that they made it possible for the army to commit crimes by assisting uh, the army and by being there at, the, at this time and of course they defend themselves with you know everything they have. Uh, trying to say that no, this is not within the jurisdiction of uh, of this court, and this is not. And it's an interesting case in a way. It's the first time since the Nuremberg trials that a company is is tried for for violating uh, 
international law. Uh, so, so it will be very interesting what will happen with this with that with that trial. Uh, so this was the company that Carl Bildt got on the board on, and uh, I don't know why he did it. Uh, I'm just reading now. He published a, a book uh, next week. It will be out. His biography. Oh, it's, okay. It's called My Wars. Do you expect a feature in that? No, he doesn't mention Sudan at all. Okay. Which is bizarre. He, he doesn't mention uh, Iraq, uh, which was also a war he promoted, which is bizarre. Yeah, perhaps he, 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 <laughs> he would rather people forget about it. Yeah, those but things. it's yeah, it's it's uh, markerless. I don't know. It's uh, uh, no, and uh, yes, yeah, so he was on he was on the board, and that of course made this whole issue huge in Sweden because he was a foreign minister during the time we were jailed investigating an oil company, which mm-hmm. he had been on the board of. At that time, he was no longer a member of the board uh, when when we were jailed. But he was accused of, you know, having these two different roles, mm-hmm. and I think that, in a way, that worked to our favor because it made him work day and night to try and get us out, because it was a huge problem for him, more than Melisenavi, the Ethiopian prime minister, that mm-hmm. that we were there. Uh, so, yeah, it's. Uh, uh, but the whole idea was also, you know, not to be too late, as in the Sudan case, but rather, you know, more like a proactive journalism. Okay, it's five to twelve. These things might happen here if this oil company goes in, and uh, n- you know, not just you know be there after the earthquake, so to speak, but before. And hey, this could happen. That was the idea uh, with, with with going in, also doing this story so early on because they hadn't started to. You know, they started, you know, drilling and looking for oil, but there was no active, you know, oil exploration going on. It's such an interesting feature of Sweden, you know, this country, which I love so much, that you can be so egalitarian, somehow very socialist, somehow very individualistic, but Mm -hmm. then also somehow just produce these caricatures of extractive capitalism (laughs) you know (laughs) with this london petroleum being such a such a poster child it's such a popular stock also i mean it's if you look at like the big owners are not big companies but you know ordinary swedes which feel that it's you know uh, yeah it's it's really popular among small savers or how to say uh, this uh, this company also oh, to invest it's in. an oil company <laughs> yeah and today they are um, i mean they are really played it safe so they sold off almost everything and just have uh, exploration outside the co- coast of norway uh, these days so they're really kind of mm. yeah they are not perhaps like volkswagen or hugo boss or something mm. they can turn into a great renewable energy company yeah. with very probably. shady origins <laughs> probably yeah, yeah that's probably. uh what, what is their reputation now it's just sort of you know uh what do you call it? white bread normal uh i mean i say this ongoing trial it doesn't get the attention i think it deserves because uh, it's so unique and uh they've also been good at you know uh Buying art, you know, sponsoring art centers, both in Norway and in Sweden, a bit like art washing, you know, trying to to <laughs> get a, a better name for themselves and their company. Yeah. And of course, they would say that, you know, to journalists, they say that, but we created peace in Sudan. You know, oil exploration, it, it contributes to peace and economic growth. And 
I mean, that's fine. You could say that to a journalist doing a, as an article, but I mean, try that in a court to a, a prosecutor. I mean, they will point to these evidences happening in 5A and they will, well, we created peace, but apparently no, this happened. Please answer my question. So that's really interesting to see what questions the, the legal system could get from, from this company that that journalists hasn't been, been able to, uh, to to get. Yeah. So you've gone through this um, horrific time in the desert, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, gone through a Kafka-esque trial, yeah. I think you described it as. Yeah. Um, a show trial. Mm, yeah. Just yeah, where they were uh, showing these videos after we were captured uh, and then... There's also one stupid thing that we did before we went from Somalia over the desert. We spent, you know, uh, more than a week waiting uh, at a hotel in Somalia, and uh, that we, we got to know the the guards of the hotel. And one day, you know, we were playing football with them, and uh, they were like borrowing Yuan's tobacco, and he was borrowing their Kalashnikov, and then. I had a GoPro camera with me, so there are some seconds of footage where Yuan holds this Kalashnikov, mm. and that footage was was found on us when we were arrested, and of course that was gold for the propaganda, the Ethiopian propaganda apparatus. So that footage was shown during the trial, and then we were, you know, accused of uh, terrorist training, mm-hmm. taking drugs and then doing terrorist <laughs> trainings, and the drugs were the, the two mortal Swedish sins. Snus. Yeah. <laughs> uh, of course, it was, I mean, immensely stupid to to hold the gun. You should never do that as a reporter in any conflict area. But really? Yeah. But Just all, because of the lesson you had to learn the hard yes, way? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. I mean, and I know all colleagues have those kind of pictures. <laughs> from, yeah, right. yeah. So, so, but it's, yeah, it's really a lesson to learn. How can these pictures be used against you? And they were really used. But they also added like gun sounds to the to the film. And then when we objected and said, hey, we didn't fire, you know, the finger is not even on the, yeah. <laughs> uh, you can't, you don't fire a gun that way. And the uh, prosecutor would say, well, we added some gun sound just to make it clear what your intentions was. <laughs> so, yeah, as you say, totally Kafkaesque. And then we were sentenced to, I mean, basically for moral support of terrorism and the Ethiopia they have a terror law that says that if you have any kind of relationship with a group that's terrorist labeled, then you are the messenger of this terrorist group with the messenger boy. So it's it's a law that criminalizes journalism because how can I do my job if I'm only allowed to talk to the government and not to the opposition groups, even though they are armed? I mean, it's the job to talk to both sides. So basically what, what was on trial was not me and Johan, but journalism was on trial. And we also had, I mean, colleagues from the States, from the UK, flying in, testifying and explaining to the court how does the journalist work, you know, journalists who crossed borders in Libya or uh, Syria and like this, this is how we roll, you know. Yeah, sometimes we break laws, but we do it to do our job, to bring home a story and to tell our viewers and listeners and readers what's going on in these areas that are closed off to the world. This is not terrorism, this is, you know... uh, original reporting using your feet more than google going to the places uh, but you know the judge just shook his head and then sentenced us to 11 years for for terrorism of which you spent yeah 14 months so in, in a way prison. yeah so explain 
the conditions, the yeah. the everyday life of this place? I mean, the worst part was actually before we were sentenced, when we were kept at the police station Makalavi in in Ethiopia. Uh, then we were kept separated in isolation. Um, the cell was about two times three meters, a wooden floor, uh, concrete walls, uh, and then a wooden floor above the cell. And I mean, what I remember thinking back is really how difficult it was to be, you know, just on your own, just with your own thoughts and trying to, you know, navigate and trying to like, okay, what does this sound mean? What's happening now? And because uh, that was really, a, a, I mean, I think isolation is such a horrible thing to be in because you always have someone to talk to or you have your cell phone and you are not really used to be, you know, on your own. And then hearing the sounds and in the beginning when I heard the sounds of, you know, steps or, you know, body against body or this kind of sounds, I thought that, well, they're exercising, you know, they're jumping or they're training the police. And then eventually I understood that, no, this is, there's a pattern in the sounds. In the beginning, they scream and shout and then at towards the end, it's always like silent and this kind of just dragging sound. And then I understood that, well, this is, this is the sound of torture. These are, you know, fellow prisoners being tortured to confess different made up crimes. And, you know, hearing that and understanding that these people are screaming because they're tortured. You know, it really, you are not strong in that moment. You're, you know, you felt that is my turn next? Is it you one that they are torturing? Uh, and, uh, yeah, really, you know, your body just wanted to lie down and, and, and cry, basically. And you try to find something within you that, you know, strategy or something. And I remember that, you know, everything that you knew by heart so important like I mean this knowledge by heart uh, thing every like poem or song or that you could just you know entertain yourself with was really like a tool not to become crazy in that in that cell uh, it was so important and then also it was cold you know it's rainy and Alice Ababa is 1500 meters above sea level so it's it's, I mean, it was freezing cold night time. And then to stay warm, I started to run. And then I got dizzy, you know, running around clockwise. And then anti-clockwise, it was still dizzy. And then it's like, people have been in cells for thousands of years. There must be strategies. And I remember that there is this book by, by Arthur Köstler called uh, Night at Noon, uh, I think is the English title. And his character, uh, Rubashov, he runs in uh, figure eights in the cell. And that really works, you know? You could run, you know, for kilometers without becoming dizzy. And that, you know, feeling, just running in figure eights, you know, uh, reading poems to yourself, <laughs> you felt that by, yeah, these small victories, you adapted to, the, to that situation being locked up. Mm. And uh, eventually also, you know, dividing freedom was, you never thought about freedom. It was just a non-issue was like okay how do I get a soap you know how do I get a toothbrush uh, you had these goals okay these coming 14 days my goal is to get a toothbrush and then you know you worked your way <laughs> trying to get the toothbrush mm -hmm. so I mean your life became very small but it was also a way of adapting uh, 
I mean, the main strategy or the main... Uh, in the beginning, we still thought that, well, hey, they will let us out. You know, that was what the Swedish ambassador said, that, you know, just stay cool in the pool. Don't make this into uh, some big international media thing. Uh, stay low. Uh, they will kick you out. But then I remember seeing one other prisoner who was in another cell at the women's department. And when she passed my cell every day, when she went to the toilet... Uh, there was something with her that kind of you know stuck out. She always her hair was clean and she walked very straight and looked so confident. So I, I always wondered like who is she? Why is she here? And then when she passed my cell, she uh, she you know flickered with her eye. And then when it was my turn to go to the toilet, I found this small matchbox. And in the matchbox, she had written a letter on toilet paper. And it in the on the top of the letter, it said that. If you find this letter, please destroy it, because no one, no one can can read it. And then she wrote that uh, her name was Riotta Lemo, and she wrote that she was a journalist also, and she had written many articles about the government that were critical, and that was the reason she was here. And uh, she wished us luck, and she wrote like, "I hope your gun wounds will heal, and if you are released before me, please." Tell the world that I'm not a terrorist, but a journalist working for the truth. And then it was signed by Riotta Lemo. And I, you know, remember, you know, the feeling tearing apart that and, you know, getting rid of that evidence and that letter that we were really, you know, this was something much bigger than just two Swedish journalists chasing a Swedish oil company. We had ended up in a crackdown against free speech in, in Ethiopia. And Riot, she became like our teacher, and the and the bathroom became like our university. And, you know, every day she had new letters and new messages for us. Uh, she explained why she became a journalist, and she said that you know she was a preschool teacher, but the situation in the country was so dire, so she chose to start writing. And she loved journalism, she loved the truth, she loved her country, and that decision kind of brought her to the cell. And you know, in a way that uh, she was proud of being a journalist, and eventually that that gave you kind of some kind of strength. You felt that okay, fine, you know, jail us, you know, chain us, <laughs> humiliate us, do whatever you want, but you can't take away what's the most important thing for me here. It's to be. I'm a journalist. I'm a reporter. This is my job. Uh, so she gave me that kind of strategy to find a meaning in the suffering and get up in the morning and take this teaspoon of cement and then you know start thinking okay try and remember how does this look you know if you were the interrogator got very angry you were like oh this might be a good scene in the book and if he threatened you with death sentence you were like I need to remember his exact phrasing here and what does he look like how does his table look like does he have pictures of his family and you know starting remembering names and dates and it became like your mission to to tell one day I will be free and I will tell this story. Mm. And, you know, Riot really gave me that key to surviving in prison as a journalist by putting on this journalist armor uh, in a way. So that that helped. And then eventually we were moved to Kaliti, which is, you know, 8,000 people um, in eight different zones. We were in zone six in Hulitinjabet, which is room two. So we were 800 in our zone and about two, 300 in our room. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people everywhere. 
the floor was you know so covered with people at night times so you I mean, you couldn't see the floor you just saw bodies bodies everywhere and uh, but also you know coming my only experience from prison was from the movies you know you'd seen prison movies and it's always violent and threatening and I thought when we were brought into Kalita that we will have to fight for our lives. You know, you need to hit the big guy hard <laughs> early on <laughs> and so on. <laughs> Not, uh, but what met us, you know, in the prison was something totally different. Uh, I mean, there were such warm hospital people that really welcomed us into this community, gave us a madras, you know, water, food. People shared what they had and... Also, there is within the Ethiopian culture this huge tradition of taking care of guests. So they were like, your guests in our country. We're sorry we can't provide for more for you now. And at that time, we were also you know, portrayed as terrorists on the state TV, which was on you know, 24-7 in the prison. So they also took a risk, the other prisoners, you know, really welcoming us into this community, this family. And the first word I learned in Amarinya was nubla, which is like come and eat. And I mean, I don't wish anyone to spend a day in that prison, but I wouldn't want to be without that experience. You know, it's not survival of the fittest. No, in that situation, it's, you know, forming small families, collaborating. That's the key to success, to survival by working together with other people and experiencing that was I mean kind of unique and also gave you perspectives I mean as yeah as you say as a journalist you are privileged and you do these interviews and then you go to the journalist hotel and you take a beer and you sleep in this nice soft bed and then you fly home and now suddenly you were doing this interview with this guy but then you slept next to him you know on a concrete floor for for more than 400 days and that Though we were tourists in a way in that situation and we were not in any way uh, as in the situation as our fellow prisoners. We had an embassy, you know, we have, you know, diplomats, families working for our release and so on. Still, it gave you a perspective on suffering and being not only a bystander watching and writing, but also participant in a way. And, and uh, uh, also experiences that... I think m- makes me today a better journalist to to have seen, you know, the world from that perspective. Uh, but of course, I mean, looking back, it's like also it becomes a story, and you remember the laughs and the good people. And <laughs> I mean, it's also a situation where people died through simple curable diseases: ammonia, tuberculosis. About once a month. Someone died and was carried out with his feet first. Uh, and also people who spoke politics were taken away, disappeared. People who objected, you know, to the prison authorities were taken away. And uh, eventually that also, I mean, got to you. You could wake up in the middle of the night thinking, did I say something bad about the government in my dream or... You know, you started to censor yourself talking to Yuan, just talking about... You know, food or the weather, not about human rights or the story. Cause How Swedish of you. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's explanation more than the censorship. But I mean, you get scared and 
and that's I mean I worked in a lot of authoritarian states and and uh, dictatorships and I thought well it's a tough time not being able to vote or you have to vote for this and that party but you know being there you really felt what what does it do with all human relations when people don't have the freedom of speech when people are afraid of 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 you know talking it really affects everything and uh, it makes you stupid you know you become like a vegetable or something it it really uh, so that was the difficult part uh, i'd say you know when once month you know turned to over a year to like how do i you know not become a vegetable in this environment which was all about you know uh, making you convinced that you had done something wrong and that you yeah deserve to to be there mm. when we were speaking earlier about the nepalese communities and the poverty and maybe later we'll get to speak about some of your other experiences and now you're in the prison how has it all affected your ability to to empathize do you find yourself significantly more empathetic having gone through these experiences Yeah, I think I cry more after the prison, yes. I think I'm more affected when people tell me what what they've been through. It mm. it hits me harder. Yes. Uh but it might not only be the prison, it might also be that I mean now I'm I'm a father myself. I have two kids, two girls. Uh also I'm, yeah, that also kind of makes you more <laughs> you cry more. It's, it softens <laughs> Soft, you up a bit. It softened me up a bit yeah. than before, I think. So I can not only blame the uh, the, the prism for that, uh, but of course it changes you. Yeah, it does. Yeah. No, but maybe not to you know to the worst. And I think all kind of traumatic experiences changes people in a way. You know, you learn things. And what I noticed, I mean, working in the field again is that I'm not uh, I'm afraid of these legal you know challenges or I'm afraid of that someone will knock on my shoulder and say that well this story is forbidden to report on or this group is terrorist labeled you shouldn't meet them mm. I didn't you know care about that at all before I mean I talk to who I want to talk to I'm a, I'm a journalist it's my job you know I talk to terrorists and I talk to governors and I talk to politicians it's not mm. But now I'm I'm really hesitant in, like especially terrorist label groups and how I approach them. I mean I don't send them an email like, "Hey, I'm coming to your country," <laughs> uh, and I see that kind of that criminalization of journalism by terrorism laws or different national security laws as as one of the great dangers ahead for for reporters to work. And you could also see that it works, you know by jailing journalists they silence the message and it doesn't cost anything to to keep journalists at jail and i mean if you look at two swedish journalists in ethiopia but you also have i mean i'm thinking the al jazeera team that were jailed in cairo for uh, with peter Greston and the others uh, you have so many cases also where international reporters are jailed and it doesn't have any consequences you know financially diplomatically or legally states have learned that 
you know, violence against journalists' work. You know, it it's it's a cheap form of censorship, and that is, uh, yeah, that is scary. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, in taking risks, I feel that I don't have the same kind of checks and balances anymore. I mean, I don't I don't cross borders, but. <laughs> Still, my perspectives in you know what can be done and can't be done has been kind of the goalposts has been moved. Sure. I mean, I I broke into brothels and to find evidence, and I uh, you know when I was in Togo a while ago, there was a Swedish Togolese um, democracy activist who was jailed and in prison. And uh, I'd been in the country for you know over a week, and it was my last days in in Lomé. And I thought to myself, shouldn't I try and get into the prison and get an interview with him? I have, because I covered you know, everything else. So then I just, you know, put on my jacket and and uh, pretend using my the best French I have that I'm his lawyer, uh, and uh, managed actually to get you know through the first gate and the second gate and actually into his cell. And he's very shocked to see a Swedish <laughs> lawyer he didn't know of. Uh, but then he shows me that he's tortured. He has clear evidence of torture on his hands. And his um, health status is very, very bad. He's very, very sick. And then I get out of, uh, of that jail <laughs> and then quickly to the airport and you know fly home and file the story. And uh, eventually also the attention around his medical situation creates an opportunity where he's released so so in a way it's also it has it hasn't made me more you know careful in a way but maybe more innovative in in uh, also the need for journalists to push boundaries Mm. and uh, to you know to go as 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 far as possible to get the story or to get you know the type of risk that you took um, colluding with the terrorist organization, illegally entering a country that um, had a shocking um, precedence against the type of crimes you could be accused of, uh, it's just an extraordinary thing to do, you know, in terms of the risk. Um, you know, I'm sure you always ask this, you know, how do you think about risk? What do you think about risk? So I'm trying to avoid asking you that bland of a question. But I just think of myself, if I was in your shoes, would I have the balls to do that? And do you think about it in those lines? Like, wow, this was a gutsy thing to do? Or instead, maybe did you just underestimate the risk, for example? I think that I would be totally honest the really courageous thing to do would have been after 14 days in Galkayo, after seeing, you know, a strange jeep with a lot of antennas, after all the delays, the brave thing to do would be to just, you know, call off the story and go back home. But that decision is so much more difficult to take than to actually cross the border with a smuggler. Really? Yeah. Because your ego's attached to it? And- I wouldn't say the ego, it's... You know, we are, clo- we are so close to investigating these important testimonies by the refugees. We are so close. They are just there, you know, on the other side of the border. The villages are there. The human rights violations are there. We are so close. No one else is here. We need to do this. If we, you know, go back now, we will probably never return. 
and also you know we were there on a freelance basis we invested you know also you know so That's much true. money Sun in this cost. story all the costs <laughs> you know satellite telephones uh, everything uh so that's why also, I mean, now on blank spot being an editor, when I have reporters out, I don't let them take these decisions themselves there because you are just too close to the story. They should be taken in an air-conditioned office uh, <laughs> with someone who has slept and had a proper breakfast. And uh, yeah, um, looking back, I'd say that that had been the brave decision to call things off, but it's extremely difficult to do that and it's something i try to tell also when i'm i'm teaching at the school of journalism in stockholm to tell the students that that is a brave thing to do you will be in situations where you feel like okay should i go to this next village or should i you know do this i need one more interview or i need this that it's not it's a brave thing to call to call things off uh, and i think the way logically I can explain to my brain to do it is to uh, like no one knows what I could have got you know <laughs> and apart from me with the phot photographer who's there mm. usually the readers when they read the article they don't know that oh there was another village with this story and they never went there you know they don't know that so I mean that's yeah maybe just a way in your head to, to justify yeah, to justify yeah. you know calling off the story because yeah. it's so you still have it's a so great story. It's so difficult. Yeah, you still Only have a great you know story. How yeah. much better it could have exactly, been. Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, but with that said, I think, you know, you have to do the best of the experience. And at the time, also, this group was the new terror law in Ethiopia. It was actually passed by the parliament the same day we crossed the border or the day before. <laughs> we didn't know about that. Uh, so the stakes changed. But even if I had knew it, I don't think we had, you know, cared really. Because at that time, I believed in my press ID and I believed in that being a foreign reporter would would be a get out of jail free card. Because mm. um, this was also the first case where foreign journalists were actually prosecuted and found guilty of, you know, supporting terrorism for talking to one part in an ongoing conflict. Mm. It's, you know. There had been cases, but their names were Mohammed or Abdi or etc. That were common, but this was the first time there was a, uh, you know, a Martin and a Johan, and and uh, I think that also. I thought that you know, my press ID would be this get out of jail free card, right. which is what's not, mm -hmm. and that's an experience also. To being a journalist, you know, was the thing that. I was caught with my fingers in this jar <laughs> where they don't want anyone, you know. And uh, that's why they also took this chance to show the local journalists, look what we can do to look what we can do against the two, these two Swedish guys. Imagine what we could do to you mm. and send this message of fear, basically. Uh, I think the Ethiopian authorities uh, saw this as an opportunity mm. to use us as a pawn in, in the game. I mean, this is also, you know, 2011. The Arabic Spring, it, it's still a thing. Uh, you have Libya, I mean, Gaddafi's shot and arrested in, in the autumn of 2011. So, of course, a country which has, at the time, 96.5, I think, of the seats in the parliament, of course, they are afraid of an Arabic Spring mm. situation in, in Ethiopia. And they choose to act rather than being you know, acted upon by some, some other pro-democracy group or anything. 
that's also one of the reasons things yeah went 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 the way they went take us back to the prison briefly um i think you gave a lovely explanation for why it might not have been just become the alpha in the yard yeah the ethiopian Mm. culture really Mm. shone through and they wanted to be hospitable to a guest even though you're all prisoners saying are you a guest but um maybe some of the sounds and some of the smells and how you would eat yeah and to live 14 months in so in such a yeah for a suite from yeah. Norbotten, no less. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've got yeah. 10 kilometers squared to yourself. Yeah. You know, so, um, yeah, just take us back to the prison and, and try and give us a sense yeah. for it. I mean, basically, the word prison leads your thoughts in totally the wrong direction. I mean, if you, if you try and imagine just a field, uh, like a music festival, maybe, or something. Uh, but... And then you have like barbed wire and, and, and fences, but instead of you know stages with musicians, you have these guard towers with machine guns, and you have basically barns made out of corrugated steel, and uh, you know the overpopulation is you know I don't know maybe the room was built for sixty or eighty, and we are three hundred people in the room, so it's people sleeping everywhere you know bunk beds with two and two in every bunk and then the floor is just packed with people uh there's even at bedtime one person responsible for packing the floor so people would lie down with their shoulders down you know one by one and he would be like responsible for pushing people you know so that everyone would fit into the room I mean, you, th- you try and think as a reporter and try to just remember it. Uh, and uh, But then you also, you, lo- you know, you knew that it was so cold. So after a while, people would, you know, crawl up against each other. And then would be small rooms where you could put your feet so you could go to the toilet, which was on the other side. There were two toilets for all 300. Uh, so you could actually, you know, g- walk across this kind of sea of humans uh, and then I mean every morning you have the police shouting kotra 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 and banging with their batoons on this corrugated floor uh, corrugated steel walls like kotra 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 it means counting counting and then you get up you know, and then all 800 in the zone because there were like four rooms with two three hundred in each stood two and two in these long lines and then it took maybe 20, 30 minutes to count everyone. And then usually some police just did a mistake and everything had to be recounted again, you know, all 800 again. And uh, the fascinating thing was also that the prison was was run by prisoners. It was almost like, you know, these World War II capo systems that you read about. Uh, the police took care of the, like, the outer perimeter, but... There were prisoners counting prisoners. There were prisoners, you know, cooking the food. There were prisoners. There was this prison committee that was handling out also physical punishments to to prisoners who didn't obey. And then every Monday we had this called Gumgamma, which was a meeting in the prison. Uh, and it was a tradition also from the war where Ethiopia, you know, kicked out uh, Mengistu and the. the 
at the time the current government took power. They had this kind of Maoist tradition with self-criticism uh, in a way. And that lived on in the prison. So every Monday we had this self-criticism session where we were supposed to answer the questions like what can we as prisoners do to improve the situation in the prison? And then when someone is like, hey, you know, people are dying, you know, we are not taking to court. This guy, he's totally forgotten, he's been here for three years. And then the committee will be like, no, that's not the topic. On the agenda is what can we as prisoners do to improve the conditions? For the, you know, it's like Monty Python, totally bizarre, totally bizarre. And these committee members, this is the agenda. And then the second point was always on the Monday meeting. How can we improve our relationship to the police? What can we do to improve? And then especially the foreigners, because there were, you know, yeah, people smuggling drugs from Nigeria or from Cameroon or whatever. I mean, they would they would object sometimes and like this is bizarre, you know, can't we talk about our human rights? Um, we want to call the Red Cross. We want to call the, you know, Geneva. And uh, those peoples were usually like moved or warned or, or punished for for speaking out. Mm -hmm. So it was no, it was a bizarre, bizarre, um, bizarre system, really. Uh, and it was also I mean, it's not called a prison. It's called a rehabilitation center. So everything was about rehabilitating us politically and making us understand all the good things that the government was doing for the country. And uh, it's a cliche to say, but yeah. it's so Orwellian. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it's. Uh, but it's funny you say because we, me and you, and we, I mean, we said to each other, we need to do something, or we will not. You know, we will, we will not. We might survive, but you know, mentally, we will be damaged heavily. You know, from from these sessions. Uh, so we asked people in Sweden to send us books, and we thought we could start a small library, and. Uh, a lot of people sent books and postcards and letters and there was this censor working at the prison, you know, checking everything, reading everything. And he was really upset because he had this huge amount of work suddenly. <laughs> His whole desk was covered with postcards and he was very angry and he said, you received all these postcards, you, this is a provocation, you know, you need to stop, tell people to stop writing, this is not helping you. And he censored them all and he burned them, uh, but still we saw them on his desk, so it was... And that meant something, you know, that was more important than food and water to see that, you know, there is a support for us. We are not forgotten because that was the fear as, as, you know, weeks went into months that, you know, this would be natural. Two Swedish journalists are jailed and we are just here. But seeing all those postcards was really a you know, sign that there's a debate going on in Sweden where people discuss human rights and oil companies and all the things we set out to put the spotlight on. But then there was also this two piles of book I remember on his desk, <laughs> one pile with uh, forbidden books, you know, <laughs> he censored them, and uh, one pile of approved books. And then I remember on the top of the pile of forbidden books was uh, uh, The Age of the Warrior, uh, Robert Fisk uh, has written that one, right? Uh, about like, yeah, 20th century uh, history, all the wars and everything. And he's like, you're a convicted terrorist and you want a book called The Warrior. <laughs> like, yeah, but it's, hey, it's Robert Fisk. He met with Bin Laden and he's like, Bin Laden? <laughs> Very much illegal, <laughs> you know, just throwing it down. 
But then carrying the other pile back to the zone, you know, we had the George Orwell, 1984. It made it through. You made it through. And we have the uh, irony of that. Irony of that. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. we had Stolzhenitsyn, the Gulag Archipelago. (laughs) We had, you know, uh, Kafka, the prose, you know, because, yeah. People thought they were funny sending us these books. I don't know. They like, just think, uh, it, or, may, or maybe he, he just reads them as, oh, this is f- fiction for them. Yeah, and he, I mean, he, that censor was either he was, a, I mean, had great humor or he was, I mean, right. you know, yeah. grossly incompetent yeah. <laughs> in his job. I don't know. Terrific what's humor. Worse. Yeah. <laughs> a terrific humor. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so we had this, you know, library with all these books and we started to lend them out and also something to do during the days. You know, suddenly we could read and yeah that was really something to i mean you could really escape the prison by by reading and and uh, i also remember we it was not maybe the political books that were so popular but i remember one guy from nigeria nigeria he borrowed the old man and the sea i mean hemingway's novel and uh he read it and then uh, a couple of days later he came back to my bed and he, he returned the book and he just said like this was a very bad fisherman <laughs> <laughs> you know not getting that whale fish up and I'm like hey it's, i never heard that angle to this story and he's like i was a fisherman before uh, and i would have done this and that when i get these huge fishes and blah 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 uh, and it was nice also to talk with him about something else then his crime or smuggling drugs or suddenly we could talk about the ocean about boats and fishing and so the books that we got in they really you know yeah you know improved our lives i mean hugely then of course it was we were there was also one lonely planet we received from ethiopia and then there's a map at the beginning of lonely planet which also has a border to eritrea two countries at war at the time and we were reported for planning a terrorist attack on the border. And then we're like, this is a joke. I mean, <laughs> why would we sit here and plan a terrorist attack? And then there were one other prisoner who confessed guilty and said he'd done this together with us. And then things went, you know, from a joke just to, you know, really, really uncomfortable. And so we just said to the Swedish ambassador who had begun to visit us that, I mean, you need to stop this. Just tell people to stop sending books. Uh, it's become too dangerous, this kind of library project. And eventually, yeah, that we got out of that map accusation somehow. Uh, but it, yeah, it's... Uh, uh, I, I mean, you could, by reading, you could be free, you know, in captivity. If you had a book, you could really escape. So that was... And you had time to read. I mean, that's something that I can miss. You know, you had time to read from from sunrise to to uh, yeah. You could uh, you could really spend your time uh, reading in a way that that I kind of miss. You took a terrific risk hiding a USB stick at yeah. one stage. Yeah. Um, in the midst of all of this stress and anxiety of what you're going through you still yeah, yeah. you know held on to the wearverse and really made that happen yeah i mean it was during one of the interrogations after meeting reota lemo and uh, getting this strategy i'm a reporter i got the courage to actually during the interrogation to uh, first create kind of a bit of a chaotic scene 
uh, and then uh, stealing. There were memory cards on the t- on the table in front of me, and I managed to steal one of the memory cards, which I think is the card from the video camera from the desert. So I know there are interviews on it that that can be used, uh, and. I mean, I'm so scared that I'm I'm shaking. I actually steal two cards, and uh, at I mean, this morning during this interrogation, uh, the police officer I don't know why, but his son is in the room as well, and he's like four or five years old or something. And uh, this child, he sees me steal the cards, so <laughs> he starts shouting uh, when I when I do it, and he points to my sock because I put them in my sock. And then I'm like, okay, he's right. Uh, you know, here it is. So I hand back, you know, one of the cards, but I still have one in my sock. And there's a bit of confusion, and it's, uh, yeah, kind of sorted out. And then back in the cell, I uh, we have this soap, and I mean, I think it was kind of the escape from Alcatraz or something I saw, where they hide things in a soap. So we try it. We have a soap, and you know, we. Uh, slice it into two parts and then make a hole in it and then put the card in a plastic and then wrap it into the soap and then just make it whole again. Uh, and that feeling, you know, having that memory card, it feels like, you know, you won. Okay, they they won everything up till now, but now, you know, everything changed. <laughs> now the odds changed to our favor because now we have this memory card with everything on, all the material from the desert and everything. And then... We are charged and and moved to Kaliti. We managed to bring this soap with us and then bring it into the prison, a place where people would, you know, die for a soap. And then we like trying to defend the soap and not, no, 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 you can't borrow it. Why? No, it needs to, it's a special soap. Uh, so we managed to hide it in a, you know, in a prison where it's really valuable. And then uh, during one of the meetings with the ambassador, when there is one guy from the embassy who's there, who's also rather brave, we tell ourselves, we know this guy will be there. Let's, you know, uh, let's open up the soap. Let's try and smuggle it out. Mm. So we take the memory card and we hand it over. And then it's eventually shipped to Sweden. And, you know, we can't sleep for days because we are just thinking, you know, they will open this card. They will see all the interviews we did in the desert and everything. And then the next meeting with them, ambassador and the first secretary you know we are so anxious like to hearing what was the reaction and he's like the card was empty and we're like no <laughs> the card was empty so for months you know we kept on but it didn't really matter you know uh, just having it that card during those months it uh, it was so important so of course we were devastated but it's not it, it played its role but in the movie, I know they they changed the story. So in the movie, the card is filled with evidence against <laughs> incriminating, <laughs> incriminating evidence. evidence. So yeah, but I think reality the reality is is even better. It's a better story with mm. an empty card mm. <laughs> than a card filled with evidence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before we move on to you, whatever happened to Riot? How did she? Uh, she was sentenced to twelve years in jail. Uh, she got breast cancer and she was told that you can apply for uh, um, clemency, is it? Bar- plea for... Uh, uh, you could confess guilty and we will, uh, you know, we will release you and you will be, be cared for your uh, 
you will be taken to hospital. She refused that. Uh, she was really, you know, beyond brave, toughest journalist I ever met. Uh, and she managed to, she appealed her sentence, got it down to five years. She spent her five years. Uh, then when she was released, she received all the Press Freedoms Awards in the world. She went to New York, she picked up the CPJ Press Freedom Prize and so on. And then she shocked everyone by kind of becoming the person she was accused of being. So she joined an armed uh, guerrilla group. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so in a way, her years in prison pushed her into, you know, becoming the one they accused her of being. Uh, in a way, I mean, she didn't, she pledged her support for this group. And, and uh, What was the group? Uh, one of the, it was not Owen Aleph, it was one one other of the, I mean, uh, I forgot now. Uh, yeah, one of the armed resistance group in, in Ethiopia. Uh, yeah, which, which also was, was terrorist labeled. Uh, then eventually she also became, she started her own like TV show and uh, from the United States and she left and now she lives in the state with her family and she produces uh, journalism. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So she survived yeah. the breast cancer? Yeah, she survived, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yes. Now this mm. is also a fairly lazy question that I'm sure you've been asked before. So I just want to see where you like to take it. But yeah. this experience clearly changed your life from a commercial perspective mm. because it gave you a huge platform and a name um, emotionally as well, like you alluded yeah. to earlier. But how do you reflect about 10 years on, maybe it's even still too close to the event, like mm. how it changed your life. I mean, I'm doing the same things now that I did before I went to prison. You know, I go to places, I meet people, I write stories, I publish stories. Yeah. Uh, so, so in a way it didn't, uh, you know, it's what I'm good at and what I'm, what I love doing. I've been maybe more convinced of the importance of journalism that doesn't always, you know, beg for permissions or uh, and really felt really the importance in, in looking into like overlooked corners of the world and, and covering blank spots and so on. Uh, so in a way it didn't change uh, what I do that much. Uh, of course, in a way, it has closed some doors and opened other doors. Uh, for a while, like Ethiopia was in war with Eritrea, and uh, you know, after writing the book and everything and getting back into the saddle, I thought maybe this could be a 14-month-long visa application to Eritrea, a country with, in war with Ethiopia. Maybe they would look at my application with different eyes than any other journalist. Mm. And that was a time where. No foreign journalists had been let into Eritrea for you know, years and years. So I went with the book to the Eritrean embassy and explained that I want to go to Eritrea. You know, I've been, I've been jailed by uh, a country you're in war with. I have no illusions whatsoever when it comes to Ethiopia. Uh, I think you should give me a journalist visa. Uh, 
and eventually I was given a visa, kind of a unique visa, to go to Eritrea. And uh, I went several trips and uh, collected material to write a book, which was called The Search for David. And David Isak is a Swedish Eritrean journalist who has been jailed in Eritrea for 21 years now this autumn. Uh, so I could ask, you know, hard questions to the ministers and people in Eritrea, but also try to understand the history of that country and why it is, why the situation it is such as it is, mm. and could travel, you know, from the sea to the to the mines in in, in Western Eritrea and. And uh, I had a freedom that other foreign journalists doesn't have, and especially local journalists don't have at all. I mean, there is no free private press at all in Eritrea. Uh, so it opened, you know, doors to other countries. And of course, it's easy for me now that I'm, even if I'm doing a story uh, about a chimney sweeper or something, you know, if I. You know, if I go to that person's house, they will probably recognize me and maybe they read the book or... Mm. Uh, so it means that people think they know me in a way and it makes it easier to get contact and to get people's trust in telling me their stories, mm. which is... Um, yeah, makes it easier to, to work in... Uh, to work in Sweden. Mm. Um, but it's... I mean, I haven't had any post-traumatic stress or anything. I haven't suffered in that way from the experience. Uh, I went to to a trauma, uh, a special trauma clinic. Uh, I mean, Sweden has taken a lot of refugees, uh, so there is a lot of experiencing in handling, especially mock executions from other refugees that went through this kind of trauma. Uh, so I went there just to get some tools and to handle stress and so on. Um, and that it was good to know that there is help to where I should go to find help if if I would start you know to feel bad or to become traumatic in a way, but it hasn't happened. I mean, what's been difficult is kind of the survivor's guilt in a way. You know, me and you one were free; all the others were still jailed. Uh, especially the years after we were free, there were. This crackdown even more intense on journalists in Ethiopia where bloggers and students and oppositional politicians were jailed. Uh, and then it felt like this kind of promise that I gave to the other inmates to kind of tell the world what I have seen. I mean, it, it felt really important to keep that promise. Mm. And uh, But it's also kind of held you back in a way because you were still there in the prison uh, trying to get them free so I'd say 2018 was kind of a turning point when Ethiopia changed and all the pressure from the democracy movement and from oppositional groups finally led to that uh, the prime minister resigned and the new prime minister Abiy Ahmed who took office he released all the political prisoners and he also received the Nobel Peace Prize and so on and then, you know, all my colleagues were free to to go into exile or to start a newspaper or something. Mm. And for a couple of months, at least, it was people had the freedom of speech in Ethiopia. Then eventually the wheels starting to turn backwards and new problems ar arose when this state oppression was not there anymore. There were new conflicts between ethnic groups and between regions and 
eventually also the old ruling party TPLF kind of went back to the north and start planning for a war and I think also Abiy Ahmed started planning for a war immediately at least towards this old ruling party and for the last two and a half years we also had this brutal war in the north of Ethiopia in the Tigray region also underreported war where I mean there are figures of hundreds of thousands of civilians who have died uh, in that in that war which is you know not really on the media radar so that's more than the amount of civilians that have died in the Ukraine Russia yeah, conflict yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's uh, uh, and it's I mean you're still attached to you learn to love that country and of course I'm following the the developments closely writing about it you know also doing journalism about it and hopefully one day I can you know return to Ogaden and to Ethiopia and uh, reach the villages I I try to reach you know and see how had the situation been there what is wow. the situation yeah. there now that would be a dream to to do someday um, but in short I think it made me a better journalist uh, to to get the perspective of you know being on the other side in a way and uh, to feel that uh, yeah to sleep next side to all of those people in that prison for so long time it, it gave you perspectives that yeah th- I think makes you better journalist well it's a phenomenal story for sure um, and one which I and probably a lot of other people you know sort of would romanticize the adventure of at least being this sort of freelance journalist going into interesting places mm. But then, as well, there is this whole other side of we'll never do something like that because mm. we're not gonna. We don't. Ha- we, uh, so th- there's something in you that made you take that risk, mm, yeah, yeah. put yourself in that position. Um, yeah, so many risks just to get there, but then yeah. to finally. So yeah. it's like. Um, um, but it's not. It's not like. It's not the first story you do. I mean, before I went illegally into Ethiopia, I, I've been covering a lot of you know civil wars in. Uh, in India, in in the Philippines, you know, in Nepal, uh, you know, being with different uh, rebellions, walking in the jungle. Uh, so of course, it's not. I mean, it's at the time we did that story that was kind of you know business as usual, you know, right. breaking a law, uh, joining a movement, unable to tell a story, uh, and. Uh, uh, yeah, I think yeah, that's you need that perspective. It's not like you yeah, from school of journalism you go, Hey, let's, you know, <laughs> go into <laughs> sure. a country but your well your your boundaries push and also you want to do you want to be a better and better journalist and then you also need to to uh to do the kind of unique uh unique stories. Mm. Yeah. Well let me tee up a little bit of that. Um, not the first story you've done. No. Mm. So you're from Norbotten, which yeah, I was born there at least in in Boden, but then I moved yeah. as a three year old to Stockholm. So okay, yeah, okay. To my so. mother's surprise, I I, I don't speak uh, as I should. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. but just for yeah. the people watching, yeah. you could point to it on a map actually behind you. Yeah. Um, yeah. and just for the people listening on audio, it is 
on the Arctic Circle, potentially right on, right on it or above it? Uh, bum, bum, bum. Yes, a book that is here. And the Arctic Circle, I think it's just south of Lofoten there. So maybe you're... So maybe you're, but anyway, sure. it's, yeah, it's really far yeah. north. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a great map, by the way. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, so it's, I mean, <laughs> where, even where we are right now in Stockholm, yeah. the latitude is that of northern Canada. Yeah. You're another, I don't know, six, seven hundred kilometers north, maybe more. It, it's just a, it's a crazy, crazy north, <laughs> yeah. remote, yeah. rural yeah. place. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah. it's funny that, you know, from here yeah. yet, yeah. according to Wikipedia, yes, it's, it's you reported from Thailand, yeah. Algeria, Philippines, UAE, Cuba, Venezuela, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Vietnam, Bangladesh, Singapore, Cambodia, Bhutan, Dubai, yeah. Ethiopia. Yeah. That didn't mention India, which you no. just did. Yeah. So... Was it always yeah. going to be journalism? You're only in your early 40s now, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's a lot of experience packed yeah. into 15, 20 working years. Yeah. Um, I mean, I no, I studied journalism rather late, I think. Uh, first, I studied political science. I studied economic history. Uh I spent two, three years writing my master's in economic history, looking at Sankt Bartholomé, which is an island in the West Indies, which was a Swedish colony for 94 years. Okay. Sweden tried to be part of the slave trade. Uh, our King Gustav III uh, bought a colony from France, and then we tried to have a, a West India uh, company. Wow, the, really? the Swedish, you know, Far East India Company is rather well known, and you know, so Swedes are the colonialists as well. We tried, or but attempted. we were <laughs> late. Uh, so, you know, we started at when the abolitionist movement just gained momentum. That's where Sweden <laughs> joined, uh, and we weren't really successful. Uh, the the colony was mostly a disaster, apart from the Napoleonic Wars, where it was. Uh, the harbor were used by many other countries. Uh, but still, I studied that kind of s Swedish colonial experiment. But then I felt, you know, let the dead bury the dead in a way. There is, let's focus on what's going on today in the world. Uh, so then I, I, I applied for, uh, if you had an exam, you could have this like one and a half year quick crash course in journalism. So I applied for that and studied that. And then after... <clears throat> After that, I, I got a job at a monthly uh, cultural paper as an editor, but always had this idea of, you know, being a foreign correspondent. Mm -hmm. uh, so I met a photographer at the time. His name was Jonas Gratzer. His name is Jonas Gratzer. Mm -hmm. And uh, he also had the same dream, but he was, you know, uh, taking pictures of apartments for uh, different, uh, uh, yeah, when an apartment was going to be sold, he was good at taking pictures of the rooms and so on. Uh, but then we just, you know, we went to an Indian restaurant and we draw a map of Southeast Asia on a tissue. And uh, we said, let's go to Nepal and try, you know. So we took, I think, two weeks off and uh, we went to Kathmandu and we did, you know, everything under the sun. We did all the stories. We did three, four stories a day. And before going there, we bought 
or look through all the papers at Pressbyrån. Uh, okay, we have this, you know, Sweden is a small country, it's a small language, but there is this huge magazine uh, flora, you know, it's, there are magazines about everything in Sweden. So there is this dog magazine, there is this magazine for bus drivers, there is this magazine for, <laughs> you know, trade union magazine for nurses and... So we just went, okay, let's find a street dog. How is the rabies situation in Kathmandu? <laughs> well, how That's is it genius. to drive? Yeah, how is to wow. drive a bus in Himalaya? Yeah. And um, okay, let's do some travel stories, which is the best coffee in Kathmandu, this tea loving country. <laughs> blah 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 for a coffee magazine. And we just, you know, okay, the first homosexual parliamentarian, blah 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 for QX and and eventually we managed to, you know, pitch um, um, as many stories so that we felt after this trip that hey let's just you know resign and travel together and so then we started and we traveled 200 days a year uh for for yeah for until i was arrested in ethiopia <laughs> 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 and uh yeah i mean did did everything in and uh and you just, just made just it went work. from country to country to country yeah we found kind of the magic uh by doing everything, can you, know, you reveal the formula? From, <laughs> no, but just being prepared to do everything from travel to guerrillas to which was kind of surreal. You know, you you go in uh, in the Philippines from walking, you know, two weeks with the guerrillas in the jungle, being you know also chased by the the army airplanes, and then you fly to the next. Uh, island and you do this travel story from this crystal beach <laughs> crystal clear water and uh uh yeah then you just yeah do the next so it was uh yeah we we made it we made it work and uh also always had like okay one or two stories that we felt were you know the most important one and then you had a couple of bread stories so to say that that could finance uh, the trip and the travel. But I remember also early on, I wrote a lot about trafficking. And to be honest, it was because it was a topic that that sold, you know, sex sales and also, you know, the work against sex slaves sells. There were always magazines interested in buying stories of victims for trafficking and a lot of like women magazines and so on. So we always did like trafficking stories and then during one of the stories I was at this shelter for survivors in Kathmandu and I was sitting next to I still remember her name it was Gita she was 19 something uh, she had been lured away from her village into into India promised a job which turned out to be a brothel she worked there for years then she managed to escape and now she was back in Kathmandu at this center for survivors called Mate in Nepal and she tells me her horrible story and with all the details, uh, and I, you know, write them down, and I turn off my recorder and like say thank you for the interview. And then she, I remember she leans forward and she puts her, you know, hands on on the table and she just stares me in the eyes and says, "Why do you want to know this?" And I'm like, "Whoa, what happened? I was the one, you know, telling the questions up until recently." And while I start to think about some kind of answer, like it's, but it's good, I can write this story and then what happened to you, maybe it won't happen to others. And she's like, I've been here for years giving these interviews. So many times I tell my life story. What will happen when your story is published? And I'm like, yeah, it's hard. And I'm like, 
what will happen? And then she's like, why don't you talk to the people who bought me? You know, why don't you talk to the people who sold me? Why don't you talk to the brothel owners? Why do all journalists come here to talk to me? I told my story so many times. And I just felt, you know, dirty in a way. I felt like, am I part of this trafficking industry as well? Oh my <laughs> you know, God. This is my, my role is just, you know, telling these stories. And, and then uh, uh, the photographer Jonas, he also said, but hey, we, let's go to the brothel in India. You know, let's, uh, let's follow in the footsteps of, of, of the human traffickers. Mm. And, and suddenly, you know, doing that, going to the crime scene, uh, talking to the brothel owners, you know, you understood that this is not just, this is not about sex, you know, this is about money. This is about, it's hugely profitable to, to run these brothels. Uh, you know, the the profits are, are really extreme because you could sell, it's not like a product you sell once, you sell it, you know, over and over and over and over again. And uh, also all my like knowledge from studying, you know, the slave trade and economic history, suddenly that process, you know, I understood the process more of, you know, the the financial economy of, of, of trafficking and and also that, you know, you could focus a lot on poverty reduction in, in the villages. So you could focus on, you know, start trying to stop people at the borders, which a lot of anti-trafficking things are focusing on. But but if you need, if you need to kill something like slavery or trafficking, you need to hit the profit, you know. You need to hire the the alternative costs of, of running this business, and then you need to hit you need to hit the brothels and you need to hit the people making money of, out of this. And suddenly, I saw the issue in kind of more clear terms. It's not an issue about people buying or selling sex, but it's it's an industry. And I mean, we managed to to stop slavery once, you know, by by abolishing it and making it illegal and unmoral. So. It's also possible to uh, to stop trafficking, uh, but that I think that also put me on on the track to okay. You need to go to the you need to go to the <coughs> uh, to the places where the crime you know happened. You need to go to the brothels. It's not enough just to talk to the victims, and so much of journalism of today is still just talking to the victims and listening to the victim story. But there are perpetrators. There are people responsible. And we need to go there as well mm. to the crime scenes and, and, that's and do that job. That's when the risk starts coming. That's in, when right? the risk starts coming in, that, and that's when it becomes real, really difficult. Mm. And the victims are so easy to to get to. You have NGOs, and you have a whole industry of people who will help you, who will serve you the victims, like this girl Gita, mm. you know, being served for journalist after journalist after journalist to tell her story. But no one was really investigating. Okay, but who? What's the name of this brothel? Who bought you? Who sold you? What was the cost? What's the cost of a condom? What does a beer cost? You know, how does this equation look? The mi- you know, microeconomics of of trafficking. How does it look? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, by by doing that, I felt the stories became became better. And and that's also something I I you know took with me since since Gita, you know, told me some uh, important. <laughs> know things in in my future journalism so that's yeah that was one uh, kind of a turning point in how to how to work as a freelancer uh, and and my responsibility as a freelancer and the responsibility as a journalist and the stories i tell and how i tell them in a way 
I definitely get the sense that you've got an incredible sort of memoir autobiography in you one day. So I don't want to just keep <laughs> taking advantage of the time that no you've worries, allotted. No worries, no worries. Um, but if you could perhaps tell a story that really stands out to you from the years before Ethiopia, you've just told this one about human trafficking. Mm-hmm. Just, uh, just another experience that really stood out to you that is one you created by putting yourself in the position by taking the risk as a freelance journalist, mm. by front-loading the cost, having no certainty of anything no, coming no. out on the other end? I mean, in, in the early years, I did a lot in the Philippines. Uh, it's such an interesting country with, you know, 600 years of Spanish colonialism and then 100 years under the United States. It creates this strange political cocktail of uh, violence and vibrant civil society and and also everyone speaks english <laughs> imelda marcos is one yeah, of the most exactly. like movie villains of all time yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and now i mean his uh, his daughter is is elected right it's was a strange wasn't it no it's uh, bonbon it's no, the no, it's son not. of it's a son it's a son yeah. the son yeah. but um, her son yeah her yeah, yeah exactly exactly yeah uh no so uh, so the Philippines was uh, a place where you f- where I learned that you could find a lot of a lot of stories and people were also brave enough to tell their stories. Uh, I mean, there are so many things. I remember the the, the massacre in in uh, in Mindanao, where fifty six journalists were killed at the same time uh, during. Uh, uh, we were there shortly afterwards uh, together with one of the surviving uh, journalists who was supposed to be on that press conference but he never went and uh, you know just going th- going over that hill and also going to the police station and seeing all these massacred cars because what they did was they they shot everyone and then they just buried they had caterpillars with them and just made these huge holes which they put in the bodies and the cars and the buses and with the satellite dishes and everything. Uh, it was basically a rivalry between the Ampatuans and Magindadatus, two political families in, on this island. Uh, I mean, that's that's a point where you felt that this is a dangerous profession in a way, uh, of course. Uh, I mean, walking with the NPA and the old thing in the jungle, the, the new people's army. Uh, that's where the photographer got sick. Uh, he was really sick, but he was treated by the guerrillas medics. And uh, I don't know if that's a good story to tell. I remember I was also early on as a freelancer and we walked for, you know, uh, days. And then we met this legendary rebel leader, Kaoris. And he had walked, you know, he also walked for a week to meet us and something and then when he sees me he's like but where is where's your video camera <laughs> I'm like i don't have a video camera <laughs> i'm a freelance journalist from sweden and he yeah. was so disappointed <laughs> uh, but still uh, after a while he, he of course told me his story uh no but maybe maybe the story that from from the philippines there was one uh it has to do with trafficking actually there, when we, while we were there, there were two Swedish guys 
arrested for um, for human trafficking in in Mindanao, and we went to. They were in the city CDO, Kayagan de Oro, where they were arrested. And there was one dancer from the Malmö Opera and one IT technician from, from Stockholm they had met in, in Thailand and chose to go into the cyber sex industry. So they had started, uh, together with local people, of course, uh, they rented this house uh, and then they built like 20 cubicles and then they had... 20 girls working in these cubicles in front of live cameras and on the site livejasmine.com which is like an yeah, internet sex page and then people paid them to do different things from all over the world and they thought they were like of uh, yeah innovative you know before their time and this was illegal in Thailand but it was still legal in the Philippines so they thought uh, but one of the girls uh, is taken from another city to Kayagan de Oro and after the police kind of hits uh, and arrests them she testifies that she she didn't want to be there and she didn't want to work there. Some of the other girls say that this was a better job than what they had at the brothels and and, uh, they don't want to file charges against these two Swedes. Uh, So then we are there for I think two weeks talking to everyone connected to this story uh, trying to uh, to tell it as you know, nuanced as as possible. Mm. Uh, they are later on convicted to life in prison. Uh, they are still there today. Uh, uh, they tried to escape once, uh, but they were arrested again, and uh, and are still imprisoned. Because also in the Philippines, this became. Uh, a matter of national pride, like, okay, we have these two foreigners abusing our women. Mm. Uh, so the trafficking law was really used as hard as possible. Mm, mm. While, I mean, anyone who's been to the Philippines know that you have still whole cities that are like big brothels. So it's, yeah. uh, or there's a, a lot of, a, yeah. A detail from uh, yeah. a book recently written by Nathan Lynch, mm. who um, it's called The Lucky Laundry. It's a yeah, massive yeah. anti-money laundering expose in australia yeah, yeah. mostly yeah. uh yeah a lot of the most heinous yeah, yeah. sexual mm. crimes especially yeah, against yeah. children yeah, exactly. yeah, it's, it's in the philippines yeah, it's yeah. horrible it's horrible so of course there are a lot of double standards yeah. to this issue uh, mm. but look yeah. um mm. <laughs> i'm just trying to think of of uh whether this is just me being interested or Uh whether this is something the audience (laughs) would be interested in because in this part there's a lot of projection from me yeah yeah. you know uh like the the thrill of the adventure the call to action the potential of doing something great telling a great story being involved in something great um you know you're a young guy you've just finished you've 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 sat down you've drawn a map of southeast asia and said let's go there Mm -hmm. let's do it i mean this adventurous part of you do do, do you recognize that that's uncommon it's unusual you know to to really pull the trigger and actually do it and at the time did you feel that way or was it just like yeah this is what we're gonna do i mean i don't think it's the adventure that attracts me um I don't think that this is the case for most Swedish, f- you know, foreign correspondents or foreign reporters. Uh, 
I mean, if you were into adventure, you would climb mountains or you would go rafting or, you know, you would. Well, it's, not it's necessarily. More, it's more of, you know, yeah, wanting like to do. That's like, that's action. Yeah, but you want to do, you want to do something unique. You know, yes. you want to do this. You want to be the best journalist there is. You want to file this story that really changes things. I think that is the the motivation, really. It's not... I mean, I met I met reporters and photographers that are really you know they are there for the for the adrenaline for the rush for the kicks. Right. Uh, I you know yeah I've I've seen those guys. Uh, I don't, uh, and maybe as a photographer you need to have that more because you can't really miss the opportunity while it's there. But I mean, <laughs> it's a boring answer. Like, okay, but okay. let's, let's well, there, do this. There are, there are, uh, <laughs> Listen there are good, there are good uh, forces and, and bad forces, but I don't think. Uh, I mean, for me, uh, yeah, you mentioned Norbotten, but I also, my my mother worked uh, for Sida uh, for a couple of years. I grew up in Botswana in the south. Uh, you did, uh, yeah. Now there's in Gaborone, a detail. <laughs> yeah. So I spent, you know, uh, yeah, when I was like nine, ten, eleven, I lived there, and of course that gave you perspectives on the world and also kind of an understanding that the world is bigger than Sweden. Uh, also coming home, you know, turning 11, 12, and, you know, you have no idea who Madonna is or who Michael Jackson is, but you know <laughs> everything about African antelopes and snakes. And wow, that's amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was, you know, kind of a tough time in school to... Uh, watch MTV and try to learn. Okay, who are these people <laughs> <laughs> that I should know of? And no one was interested in my knowledge in you know the difference between Thompson or Grant's Gazelle. <laughs> uh, so uh, I think having that that background and also uh, from from early on, you know, traveling a lot, traveling a lot. When I was seventeen, when I went like to Vietnam, one of my first, you know, backpacking trips, you could say. Uh, so maybe that's, it wasn't such a big step, you know, mm. to go freelancing uh, mm. for me, because uh, I had been, yeah, traveling and, and kind yeah. of, uh, yeah, traveling in the world before mm. that, mm. yeah. Look, Martin, we've yeah. been going three yeah. and a half hours. Oh, I'm going to wrap it up with four mm. questions, yeah. two that I like to ask every guest oh. and then two that are very much for you. Um, who are adventurers, journalists that you admire? They don't have to necessarily be alive, but just people that you, if, if, if they read your work, yeah. you would really, really want to impress them. So what do we have here? We have Alexievich. Okay. Ah, uh, this Svetlana is the yes. Okay. Yeah. She has written a lot from Sink Boys, Sink Poika about uh, the Soviet Union's war in Afghanistan. Uh, I mean, I really love her way of writing, her way of compiling a lot of stories and voices into one, one, you know, one narrative. Uh, she is one. I mean, I, I was a great admirer of Robert Fisk. Uh, I think he was, you know, brave, and he was uh, really had his own voice in seeing both the micro and the macro level in his stories. You know, he both had the families, and he had the 
geopolitical and the political dimension as well. Uh, I mean, the one that I really admire today is uh, uh, the guy who does this Out of Eden walk. Uh, I forgot his name now, but he's doing this National Geographic project where he he walks around the globe. He started in Ethiopia seven, eight years ago and walked through in the traces of, of mankind. Uh, through wow, cool. Out of Africa and then, you know, through Saudi Arabia and now he's in China, which will take him like eight months to pass. <laughs> what a legend. And he's, you know, talking to people on the way and it's such a humble way to, to meet people, not to come with an airplane, but, you know, Oh, I walked here from Ethiopia. <laughs> <laughs> Out you know, of Eden. Yeah, how is, what's happening? How is your life? And uh, no, I love his dispatches and his way of, his view on journalism and really this you know, slow journalism, taking it to the extreme, really. And also finding these stories that are not about a conflict or a war, but still determine the fate of humanity in a way. You know, how do we grow crops? Uh, how do we adapt to changing weather? Uh, yeah, I really love his... Uh, I forgot his name now. Uh, those are three. Bum bum bum. Dun dun dun. I mean, when it comes to Sweden, we have one one journalist, Magda Gad. Uh, she she was one of the blank spot founders many years ago, but she she was recruited to Expressen. Uh, I think she's. I mean, she changed the game in a way that she doesn't go home. You know, she stays in the story. She lived in, in Kabul now for four or five years. Wow. And uh, I think that's also a perspective that we need in journalism, that the time is over when we can just fly in, you know, and do our story and fly back. Mm -hmm. We need to spend more time in the regions that, that we are covering. So, yeah, she's also the one that I read with. Uh, yeah. Nice. That's a good mix. Yeah. Advice for young people who would listen to this podcast and think, wow, that Shiba guy, I really, I, 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 I like that. Yeah. I would like to also. Don't take do advice that. from a dead guy. Isn't that an expression? <laughs> Don't take <laughs> advice from a jailed shot guy. <laughs> do this. No, but. Uh, but you know what I mean? I'm yeah, not trying to. Um, you know. No. Bah. Knowledge by heart. Really, learn things uh, that you could take, that you could remember if the shit really hits the fan. And uh, figure eights, remember. <laughs> remember to run in figure eights if you're ever locked up. But for example, you said you could go to the press Beardown, was it? Yeah, press exactly. Yeah, and you could look at all the magazines. Yeah, Is that still the case? Right now, if you want to really survive as a freelancer? I'd say now... I would start in a different end. I mean, now I would turn directly to the listeners, viewers, or, or readers. Like, you know, start a podcast or a vlog or uh, a Substack. I mean, there are so many possibilities now for, for I mean, young aspiring journalists that were not there when, when I started. So it's just, you know, you could crowdfund in the beginning, you know, s smaller assignments and then larger and larger and just try and find ways to reach your own generation in in a way that they will you know in the way that they want the world you know packaged uh, I said yeah that 
that would be my advice. I mean, no one will give you this this job as a foreign correspondent. <laughs> You'll have to create it, you know, for yourself. And finally, two questions I like to ask as many guests as possible. What is a country that you're particularly bullish on? Bullish, like uh, I don't like it, or like no. No, bullish yeah. is say, you, if you could purchase a piece of it, mm-hmm. you would expect it to increase in value. But value is how you determine it. I'm not talking about a, uh-huh. a country with a great economic future. No, like just a country you like, you would like to invest in. Uh, I mean, the you know, flying over Somalia, seeing the the shores, you know, the kilometer mile after mile after mile of you know white uh, beaches. And, you know, wow, I've never we've so, never had Somalia. <laughs> it's so so why? Uh, I mean, it's so pristine and and unique, and uh, you know, once there's peace in Somalia. You have the most, the most beautiful coastline that you could ever think of. It's really the Somalian coastline. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, and finally, yeah, we've we've now made it to yeah. <laughs> the end. Yeah. Um, if you could witness a conversation between any two people of history, dead or alive, yeah. no language barrier. So listen to a podcast. Mm-hmm. Who are you listening to? I would like to hear what Bilt says to uh, uh, Jan Lundin and the other Lundin uh, <laughs> family at the board meeting after uh, they are become aware of that they are charged for uh, human rights violation for their operations in, in Sudan. I would like to hear what they have to say to each other. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> Mr. Schiebe. Thank you so much. For Unbelievable. Yeah, thank really. You. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, thank you. So, thank you again, Martin Schibbe. Uh, we sat, I don't know, for what, four hours or something at the end of a work day, um, just recording and chatting and chatting and chatting. And I think because he's such a nice guy, he, he didn't, he couldn't say to me, Ryan, shut up, let's turn this shit off and let's go home. Um, so again, another guy just extremely generous with his time. So thank you, Martin, for that. It was an incredible experience for me to meet you, sit in your office and do this in person. I 100%, 110% prefer doing these podcasts in person. And finally, my ambition for this podcast It is to corner the podcast market for eclectic curiosities in whatever country it is that you're listening in from. Now, what does that actually mean? There's no categorization for eclectic curiosities. There are no lists for me to appear on or compete on for eclectic curiosities. Instead, all I can do is ask you to leave fat, juicy, healthy, energy-inducing reviews. Please pump that good juice into the algorithm. Swipe up your apps now. You've got Spotify, leave five stars. You've got Apple, leave five stars a review. Leave all the good stuff. And that is all from me. Until next week, thank you, my dairy, my dairy, my dear and generous listener, and as well to you, Mr. Shibe. Oh, I should also mention, he's got a movie on Netflix, 438 days. A book, 438 days. If the book sells enough copies, Martin has agreed that I can narrate the audiobook. So, buy the books, watch the movie. All the best. Ciao.